Hello, fans of interactive narratives. Welcome to the first episode of Pick Your Path, the podcast where you take your destiny in your own hands. I'm Matt Benson, and I wrote today's episode, Don't Blow Up the Universe. It's a zany science fiction adventure filled with time travel, outer space, aquatic animals, lilacs, and as many as your favorite CYO themes that you can shake a stick at. Pick Your Path was created by me, Matt Benson, and is narrated by Matt Hawley. Our theme song is by Christopher Wrigley of Bunhouse Jingles. You can commission theme songs, jingles, and more of your own at customjingles.net. Our artwork is by Wayne Jansen. You can find his work at waynejansenart.com. If you know how Pick Your Path works, skip to chapter one now. If you'd like instructions on enhanced podcasts like this one, simply keep listening. If you're a CYOA-loving parent looking to share this type of storytelling with your child, skip to Chapter Parent Guide, or simply keep listening after the instructions for a handy guide on what you can expect to hear in this story. This is an enhanced podcast, which means it is broken up into chapters. At the end of each chapter, you'll be presented with a choice. To pick that choice, simply skip to that chapter. In iTunes, the chapters control is under the control heading. The podcast's app on iOS devices, like an iPhone, will allow you to skip to any chapter. Tap on Chapters, and then choose a chapter. If you're an Android user, the VLC app allows you to skip to any chapter. In the VLC app, simply tap the Options button, the three dots, tap the arrow next to Go to Chapter, and select a chapter. Most other Android apps don't read chapters in an enhanced podcast file. An audiobook file will also be available for download at benviewnetwork.com audiobook. Okay, so if you're listening to this part of the podcast, this is where we, we give the parents a guide for what to look out for in this episode. Uh, as we have said before, this is an all-ages podcast, but there will be some sort of a gruesome end your character can meet, just like in the original Choose Your Own Adventure novels. Um, so uh, we have both read the story. We're just going to talk about kind of what you can expect. Um, as the title would suggest, you, you can. There are endings where the universe does blow up. Uh, I think you would expect that. Uh, do, do, were there any endings to you that, spuck, uh, that stuck out Excuse me, as particularly gruesome, uh, Andrew? Uh, well, there is an ending that involves a shootout. There is that in the Old West. You can you can get into a shootout. That is definitely one to look out for. There is a a, uh, a futuristic holdup where you are eaten by a slime. Yeah, you're that, eaten by a slime. That is, was that, in our preview episode. That so. was, uh, and the slime will digest you for ten years. That's probably I would say those two are the slime is probably the most gruesome, mm-hmm. and the shootout is probably the most realistically. Uh, you know, you'd be wary for it. There, there's a uh, a part in it where you become uh, a part of a human zoo. That's true. That's uh, you are enslaved by octopus creatures. Yeah, that's a little troubling. Yeah, you uh, you die as a plant in one in one scenario. You end up in, a, in the bottom of a trash can, mm-hmm. uh, and then in another scenario, you are killed by plants. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, kind of very. Uh, all the deaths though are very sci-fi, with the exception of maybe the old west shootout. Mm-hmm. They're all very kind of sci-fi fantasy deaths, mm-hmm. uh, sort of stuff you'd see on Doctor Who. Would you agree? Yes, I, I think that is how we approached it, is that we were writing at a, a Doctor Who level of sci-fi fantasy... Scariness. Uh, scariness, uh, where it's scary but not traumatizing. Yeah. And I think in the... in the uh, Looking at the all-ages aspect of it, uh, there are no curse words. No curse there words. There are no words that... Uh, no drug references, would you say? No, no drug references. And no sex. Definitely no sex. Yeah. It's just, it's a very... 
uh, safe. I mean, or... to go by the, was it, kids say guidelines? The, the, sure. There's a woman who is said to be wearing tight clothing at one point. Is there? Uh, Alana Cutlass. Oh, sure. She's a David Bowie type, so we kind of describe her, her costume. Mm-hmm. That's that's as sexy as we'll get. Yeah. Oh, there Which is, is like a description of, a, of, of rats poisoning someone. That's true. Uh, with an anesthetic, though. They're, it's just not, they're just knocking them out. Yeah. There's, um, not, there's not wanton death and destruction, no. except for when the universe explodes. Did you just say wanton? Yeah, you eat the wantons, wanton is what and then the death and destruction comes for you. Um, so that's why I don't eat wantons. Um, so parents, uh, that if, you, if you're looking to listen to this with your children, um, that is the sort of thing you can expect to see in this episode, uh, or here, rather. Mm-hmm. Uh, so without further ado, please enjoy the episode. And pick your path. The morning sun shines through your window as you stretch back and relax into the couch. The possibilities of your day unfold in front of you, totally unfettered by responsibility. Nobody needs anything from you. There's nothing you're supposed to do. Your day is completely yours to commit to whatever blissful, frivolous activity you choose. And you know just how to start. Plug in your headphones, launch the podcast app, and slide your finger across the screen until it lands on your favorite show. Savoring the ritual, you close your eyes and get ready for the dulcet tones of the narrator to take you away to another world for the next 25 minutes. You're interrupted by an incoming call. Unknown caller. At the exact same moment, you hear a knock at the door. Who's there? You call out. No answer. Can't the world just leave you in peace? After a moment, it occurs to you that the person at the door probably didn't hear you say, Who's there? They didn't say anything. Yes, they definitely didn't hear you. And of course, the person on the phone doesn't know you're there either. It further occurs to you that if you stayed completely quiet, your phone would stop buzzing and the person at the door would walk away. You could just go about your day. If you answer the phone... Skip to chapter 3. If you answer the door, skip to chapter 4. If you ignore both, skip to chapter 2. Chapter 2. You muffle your phone's vibrations in a couch cushion and keep perfectly silent so that whatever's knocking at your door doesn't hear you. It persists, but only for a minute. You're alone again. You kick back, relax, and listen to the rest of the podcast. That was a really great episode, you think to yourself as soon as it's over. You're feeling a bit hungry, so you decide to take a lazy stroll down the street to your favorite little hole-in-the-wall diner. It's a beautiful day. The sun is shining, there's not a cloud in the sky, and when you get to the restaurant, 
You find your favorite booth, open and inviting. You sit down and become ensconced in the familiar combination of vinyl and nostalgia. You've been coming here and sitting in this booth since you were young, and you only enjoy it more as you get older. You order chocolate chip pancakes. They're delicious. A wave of contentment washes over you, and you reflect on how glad you are that you chose to ignore the knocking at the door and the buzzing of your phone. Only a hassle could have come with that. You're certain. Whoever they were can bother you tomorrow. This is your day. You make your way home, where you have a full season of Bainbridge County on your DVR that's just begging to be watched. You love Bainbridge County. It's your favorite show. You spend the rest of the day marathoning the show in total comfort. You think again about the great decision you made and what a perfect day it's been. You walk to the window in order to take a look at this wonderful world of ours, and you see two things in immediate succession. The confused face of someone that looks exactly like you, and the great flash of an all-consuming fire that destroys the universe along with everything and everyone in it. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter 3 You reluctantly answer the phone. Don't answer the door, says the voice on the other end. Who is this? You ask. George Clooney. I'm from the future. I'm with Interchronological Enforcement. He answers. You don't sound like George Clooney. You challenge. I... Yes, I do. He stumbles. That really wasn't the part of this that I thought you'd struggle with. Am I on the radio, you guess? This is a weird prank call, isn't it? Is this Billy Dean in the fart? This is not a prank call, he states. Your creepy old neighbor on the house across the street has invented a time machine with the potential to create a paradox and destroy the universe. I want you to destroy the time machine first. The man at your door is from FBY. That's the foundation for a better yesterday. They want to destroy the universe too. Now turn on your television. Why? You ask. I'm going to predict the future, he answers matter-of-factly. You turn on the TV. The local morning show is on. I'm going to count down from five, and when I hit one, the host of the show is going to accidentally swear, then swear two more times trying to apologize. <clears throat> five, four, three, two, one. You hear three words you are definitely not allowed to say on television. You could have set that up, you say skeptically. Yes, I suppose I could have, he answers. Cue thunder in three, two, one. Ah, it's, it's sunny outside, you eek. Yes, which means I have either successfully predicted a freak weather incident, he explains, or I can control the weather. Either way, you don't think it's best to listen to me? You try to think of ways he could have faked his tricks. Oh, George Clooney is a famous actor in your time. I had my assistant look that up. Thank you, Tom. I can see why that seemed a little odd to you. If you go to the old house to find the time machine, skip to chapter 6. If you refuse, skip to chapter 7.
If you still have more questions to ask, skip to chapter 5. Chapter 4 Don't answer your phone, says the man on the other side of the door as soon as you open it. He wears an expensive suit. He's good-looking, but not memorable. The kind of guy who could charm a room full of people, then be forgotten as soon as he left. Who, you say? Jack Fitz, I'm with the FBY, he explains. Or were you going to ask who was on the phone? That'd be George Clooney. He's with Interchronological Enforcement, ICE for short. He wants you to destroy the time machine your neighbor in the old house across the street has just invented. Uh? You manage? Yes, a time machine. I'm from the future, so is he. The man interrupts. You'll need proof? Here's footage from the first episode of the original Bainbridge County. He holds his hands wide over his head. And images appear. It's as if footage is being protected onto the air. It is indeed the first episode of your favorite show, Bainbridge County. But that can't be. BVN, the network that developed the show, had a policy of reusing tape to save money. The whole first season and parts of the second are lost through time. No one's seen any of it since 1952. He stops the show. You see, the FBY feels that, as citizens of a time-traveling age, it's our sacred duty to use this technology to save as many lives as possible, he explains. We could prevent wars, cure the plague, evacuate hurricane zones. You hear the sound of thunder, which is odd because it's totally sunny out. That wasn't thunder, by the way, he says as if reading your mind. That's the noise your neighbor's time machine makes when it's used. You take a second to think. It's a little hard to process. That old house always did seem strange to you. Totally out of place in the neighborhood. You decide to play along for the moment, even if you're not sure whether or not you believe him. You said the guy on the phone wants me to destroy the time machine? You say. Well, what do you want me to do? I want you to give it to us. If you go to the old house to find the time machine, skip to chapter 12. If you refuse, skip to chapter 11. If you ask questions, skip to chapter 13. Chapter 5 I don't understand. You say, Why don't you just send your own people to do this? You said you work for... What was it? Interchronological Enforcement. Ice for short. He answers, Yes, we're a government agency created to regulate the safe use of time travel. A time machine used improperly could create any number of paradoxes that would destroy the universe. Right, so doesn't an agency have agents? You suggest. You know, people far more qualified for this than I am? Of course, but we like to avoid sending people through time whenever possible. It's so dangerous with the paradoxes and what have you. He stalls. He pauses, choosing his words carefully. Ah, uh, and well, to be perfectly honest, what we're asking you to do isn't, um... It's not legal. Our job is to prevent unlawful use of time travel, and technically your neighbor has done nothing wrong. Well, if he hasn't done anything wrong, why do you want to destroy his time machine? 
We don't trust him. He's arrogant and rash, not to mention paranoid. Always thinks someone's out to take his time machine away from him. Off the record, some of us here just aren't comfortable leaving someone like that with a device that could destroy the universe. If you go to the old house to find the time machine, skip to chapter 6. If you refuse, skip to chapter 7. If you have more questions, skip to chapter 8. Chapter 6 I'll do it. The words echo in your head as you approach the old house. Find the time machine. Smash it. Couldn't be more simple. You pause on the sidewalk outside your neighbor's house. You'd always wondered about this place, even before you moved in across the street. It's a known oddity in town, this grand home in the middle of a city that practically doesn't have any buildings built before 1980. You seem to remember someone once telling you that it once been part of a huge property that was continually sold off until this was all that was left. It's still quite impressive, with its spires towering over the rest of the neighborhood and the big oak trees growing in what remains of the yard. Of course, this is where the time machine would be. If you had to describe this house with a single phrase, it would be out of time. You get closer and notice a padlocked basement door. You hadn't really considered how you were going to get in. Were you planning on breaking in? After all, you're certain the inventor of this machine wasn't going to let some stranger do what they will with it because they asked politely. So what is your plan? If you go to the front door, skip to chapter 17. If you go to the basement door, skip to chapter 16. Chapter 7 This is insane. It's going to take more than a few neat tricks to convince you that your neighbor built a time machine. You politely decline the offer to help save the universe and hang up the phone. The unknown caller never calls back. You go about the rest of your day, and then the rest of your life. Whatever catastrophic event the man on the phone had been trying to prevent had clearly been prevented. Probably because he was just a crazy person, right? Though every once in a while, you'll notice things in town aren't quite the same as you remember. Almost as if someone's been tinkering with the past. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter 8 Wouldn't me destroying the time machine create a paradox? You ask. If I destroy it now, it's not a problem in the future. And then you never call me, I never destroy the time machine, and the universe explodes, doesn't it? No, he answers. I'm from the future, but I'm also from another universe. I can observe the timeline in your universe without being affected by it. There's an ice in your universe doing the same for mine. Oh, and speaking of alternate universes, you're going to want to avoid your alternate self if you ever end up in one. What happens if I meet my alternate self? The universe explodes. We don't know why. Our scientists have had a hard time researching the phenomenon without destroying a universe. There's actually a huge public debate these days over the ethics of finding and destroying uninhabited universes for research purposes. Is there a chance it'll end up in an alternate universe? Not if you destroy the time machine like you're told. But we do believe the time machine has universe jumping capabilities. Again, not strictly against our rules. Your neighbor is properly licensed. 
but you can see why we'd be nervous. If you have more questions, skip to chapter 9. If you go to the old house to find the time machine, skip to chapter 6. If you refuse, skip to chapter 7. Chapter 9 You said the man at the door wanted to destroy the universe. It can't be that simple. You prod. It nearly is, like I said, the group he's with call themselves the foundation for a better yesterday. George Clooney explains. They believe that it's their duty to alter history and save as many lives as they can, prevent wars, cure plagues, that sort of thing. Doing any of those things would cause a paradox that would destroy the universe. But they don't care. They believe that if they just keep fixing the universe, that one day a perfect universe will emerge in its place. That's why we need you to destroy the time machine. If you go to the old house to find the time machine, skip to chapter 6. If you refuse, skip to chapter 7. If you have more questions, skip to chapter 10. Chapter 10 So what does this time machine look like? You ask. That's classified, he says shortly. Excuse me? You scoff. You want me to destroy the thing and you won't even tell me what it looks like? Over the course of his life, your neighbor invents several time machines, trying to perfect the design. We don't know exactly which one is in the house right now. You can't have too much information about your future. We can't risk describing time machines that don't exist yet. You told me that the TV host was going to swear. That's level one information. Time machine design is on a need-to-know basis. Please. Go across the street and destroy whatever time machine you find there. If you go to the old house to find the time machine, skip to chapter 6. If you refuse, skip to chapter 7. Chapter 11 This is insane. It's going to take more than a few neat tricks to convince you that your neighbor built a time machine. You politely decline the offer to help save the universe. The man at your door never knocks again. You go about the rest of your day, and then the rest of your life. Whatever catastrophic event the man at the door had been trying to prevent had clearly been prevented, probably because he was just a crazy person, right? Though every once in a while, you notice things in your town aren't quite the same as you remember. Almost as if someone's been tinkering with the past. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter 12 I'll do it. The words echo in your head as you approach the old house. Go upstairs, find the time machine, go to May 3rd, 3,577. Simple, right? You pause on the sidewalk outside your neighbor's house. You'd always wondered about this place, even before you moved in across the street. It's a known oddity in town, this grand home in the middle of a city that practically doesn't have any buildings built before 1980. You seem to remember someone once telling you that it once been part of a huge property that was continually sold off until this was all that was left. It's still quite impressive, with its spires towering over the rest of the neighborhood and the big oak trees growing in what remains of the yard. Of course, this is where the time machine would be. If you had to describe this house with a single phrase, it would be out of time. You get closer and notice a padlocked basement door. 
You hadn't really considered how you were going to get in. Were you planning on breaking in? After all, you're certain the inventor of this machine wasn't going to let some stranger do what they will with it because they asked politely. So what is your plan? If you go to the front door, skip to chapter 18. If you go to the basement door, skip to chapter 16. Chapter 13 You said you were with the FBI? You ask. No, the FBY. That's the foundation for a better yesterday, he answers. And the FBY doesn't have anyone more qualified than some random stranger to do this for you? You wonder aloud. Why not do it yourself, even? And if you came here from the future, wouldn't you already have a time machine? Why do you need this one? Believe me, there are so many people so much more qualified than you for this job. You were far from our first choice, he assures you. Oh, well, that stings a little. You say, We believe in total honesty. The man on your phone represents a group called Interchronological Enforcement. As I mentioned, they chose you. Not having a time machine of our own, we piggybacked on their signal. Okay, you don't have a time machine, but you're here now, so why don't you just steal it yourself? I'm not actually here. This, he gestures towards his body, is a hologram. Well, how did you knock on my door? You say, he opens his mouth and emits a perfectly realistic knocking sound. I have a sound effects board, he explains. You're not convinced. You test the claim by reaching out to touch his chest. Your hand passes right through. Hmm, he says indignantly. Some people think it's rude to put your hand through a man's hologram without asking, you know. Oh, uh, sorry. You awkwardly apologize. I'll forgive you if you steal us a time machine. If you go to the old house to find the time machine, skip to chapter 12. If you refuse, skip to chapter 11. If you still have more questions, skip to chapter 14. Chapter 14. What exactly do you want me to do? You ask. We need you to gain entry to the house and go upstairs. In the master bedroom, you'll find a nondescript metal box with the words Mark III written on it and a touchscreen. That's the time machine. Enter the date, May 3rd, 3577, in the time 12.01 a.m. Leave the location field blank. We've arranged to meet you in the exact spot where your neighbor's house was, uh, is. Oh, one more thing, and this is crucial. Make sure you are physically holding the time machine when you activate it. Otherwise, it won't come with you. How do I know I can trust you? You ask. Well, you don't, he says. But billions of lives are at stake. Isn't that worth the risk? If you go to the old house to find the time machine, skip to chapter 12. If you refuse, skip to chapter 11. If you still have more questions, skip to chapter 15. Chapter 15 Uh, one more thing, you say. Why does the guy on the phone want me to destroy the time machine? <sighs> because he's in power, and he wants to stay that way. ICE is the government for time travelers. They have all these rules they enforce to make sure that only people who have time machines are people they want to have time machines. No matter how many people have to stay dead to make that happen, he rants. Sure, but what would he say if I asked him why I need to destroy the time machine? You ask. 
He would feed you some nonsense about paradoxes destroying the universe, but science on paradox change isn't out yet. Nobody knows what would actually happen if you caused a paradox, because it's never happened. It's just a scare tactic used to coerce the civilian population into giving ICE authority over them. Wake up and steal me this time machine. If you go to the old house to find the time machine, skip to chapter 12. If you refuse, skip to chapter 11. Chapter 16. You get to the basement door. It's a classic basement door. Wooden, on the ground, a combination padlock keeping it shut. If you attempt to guess the combination to the lock, skip to chapter 24. If you attempt to destroy the lock, skip to chapter 22. Chapter 17. You walk toward the front door. The direct approach is always the best approach. Maybe you could convince the inventor to see your side of things. The door is ornately carved and beautiful. In front of the door sits a novelty doormat. In big letters it says, Schrodinger's Mat. And under that, knock or walk and split the world in two. You hear a loud disturbance from inside the house. It almost sounds like a thunderclap. You raise your hand to knock and notice the door is slightly ajar. If you knock, skip to chapter 19. If you enter without knocking, skip to chapter 20. Chapter 18. You walk toward the front door. The direct approach is always the best approach. Maybe you could convince the inventor to see your side of things. The door is ornately carved and beautiful. In front of the door sits a novelty doormat. In big letters it says, Schrodinger's Mat. And under that, knock or walk and split the world in two. You hear a loud disturbance from inside the house. It almost sounds like a thunderclap. You raise your hand to knock and notice the door is slightly ajar. If you knock, skip to chapter 19. If you enter without knocking, skip to chapter 96. Chapter 19. You knock on the door. A few seconds later, it's ripped wide open. The man standing on the other end looks to be in his late 50s. He's bald, but the hair on the side of his head is long. He's got big thick arms and a sturdy frame. Despite his age and jolly neck, you get the feeling he would destroy you in a fight. He wears a lab coat that was probably white once, but is now covered in dirt and dust. He's been busy. Who are you? He demands. You tell him your name and that you live across the street. What do you want? He barks. Um, you wouldn't happen to have a time machine in there, would you? You ask. Oh, I get it. I know who you are. <laughs> he smiles shrewdly. You do? You say. You're ICE! He shouts. Listen, if I've told you oppressive no-goodniks once, I've told you a thousand times. I built the time machine myself, and I know my rights. A naturally occurring time machine cannot be separated from its creator unless said creator fails to abide by the rules established in the space-time accord of 3293. It's right in your own rulebook. So unless you have anything else to say, kindly leave me alone. You open your mouth to speak, he slams the door in your face. 
you won't be deterred. If you try to enter through the basement, skip to chapter 16. If you try to break down the door, skip to chapter 21. Chapter 20 You push open the door and wander into the house. You hear shuffling in a far-off room. You move toward the noise. You pass through a hallway lined with portraits of five generations of what you assume are your neighbor's ancestors. Leopold Oberchuk, Bartholomew Oberchuk, Nathaniel Oberchuk, and so on. You arrive at the source of the noise and peek your head into the room. It's the study. It's very unkempt. It appears to be the only room that's actually lived in. Inside, your neighbor, Oberchuk, is walking excitedly in circles. He looks like he's in his late 50s, but still good in a fight, like he used to be a wrestler or something. He's bald, with long hair on the sides. What a curious turn of events, he ponders aloud. I must add lilacs to the do not disturb list. The anachronistic death of even one plant. He notices you and stops. He grabs you by the shoulders and pulls you into the room. You now see a large map taking up one whole wall describing the events of human history, past, present, and future. Who are you? He spits. Oh, uniform, by yourself. You're not with ice. Look of recognition on your face shows you know what this map means. So you're not some neighborhood rapscallion that's just wandered into my house. He pauses to think. I've got it. You're from the future. You're my first historian. Not exactly, you correct. He's not paying attention. His face swims with pride at the thought of a future historian paying him a visit. The face turns to a frown when he hears his front door being kicked in. Someone is raiding the house. Ice! He gasps. They finally decided to break their own rules and destroy my creation. Quick, we have to get out of here. How? You ask. With the time machine. If you travel through time with Oberchuck, skip to chapter 67. If you steal the time machine and flee without him, skip to chapter 66. Chapter 21 You take a step back and kick the door as hard as you can. Your foot hurts. You take a few more steps back and throw your body at the door. Your shoulder hurts. Uselessly and violently, you push and pull on the doorknob. You stop for a moment to breathe and hear two thunderclaps, one after the other. Then the old man saying, I've just called the police. Skip to chapter 23. Chapter 22. You look to nearby trees and find the sturdiest looking branch you can. As you rain heavy blows down on the lock, you realize you'd probably have better luck trying to destroy the door itself. You set to destroying the door and see a bit of movement in the window and hear two muffled thunderclaps from inside the house. Just called the police, shouts a voice from inside. Skip to chapter 23. Chapter 23. The police arrive impossibly quick. There's no way they could have responded so fast unless they were called 30 minutes ago. Then it hits you. He did call the police 30 minutes ago. 
This is why you do not commit a crime against someone with a time machine. The police arrest you. Your neighbor tells them that you've been trying to break into his house for the last hour. You can't really disprove it since you were caught in the act. You spend the rest of the day in a jail cell. At first, you're intimidated by the roughnecks you share the cell with. But by the end of the day, you learn the invaluable lesson that people are people and we all make mistakes. You vow to never forget the friends you made this day, and soon after, you are released. The inventor dropped the charges. On your walk home, you pause at the vacant lot across the street from your house. Didn't there used to be a big house there? No, no, it's, it's always been a vacant lot, for as long as you can remember. Earlier today, you are arrested for trying to break into... The, the vacant lot? That doesn't make any sense. Come to think of it, you didn't know how you ended up in jail. For the rest of your life, you tend to get confused. You have conflicting memories of the life before your day in jail, as if the past had been changed somehow, and you're the only one who half remembers it as it was. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 24 You look at the lock. The first three digits are 198. The fourth is halfway between 4 and 5. You hope that the owner of this lock was too careless to scramble it after he last used it. You try 1984. Still locked. You try 1985. The lock opens with a satisfying click, and you descend into the basement below. It's pitch black. You stumble around for a moment before a light bulb bumps into your head. You didn't realize how low the ceiling was. You find the chain of the bulb and give it a pull. The room is illuminated before you. You see countless artifacts from other times. You see pictures of your neighbors standing next to massive cave drawings, depicting a great beast with wings and tentacles attacking much smaller human figures. You see a playbill for Love's Labors 1. You see a can of new coke. You sip the long lost soda and notice a nondescript metal box on a table in the corner. It's covered in dust, but you wipe it clean and see that it reads, Time Machine Mark 1. There are two buttons, one that reads backward, and one that reads forward. You search the box for any kind of input and find none. If you press backward, skip to chapter 25. If you press forward, skip to chapter 26. If you destroy the time machine, skip to chapter 27. Chapter 25 There's a loud pop and a flash. You're still in the basement. The artifacts are gone. The time machine is gone. The basement is empty, save for the lingering scent of incense. You wander up the stairs into the outside world. Your neighbor's house is still here, but there's nothing else as far as the eye can see. You look toward the front of the house. There's a man sitting cross-legged, playing the sitar. He wears tea-leaf sunglasses and a multicolored muumuu. A group of women in flowery dresses dance. You approach. The sitar player looks up. All right, a visitor, he exclaims. How'd you get into our basement? This door's been locked for like years, man. A uh, time machine? 
you sheepishly respond. Right on, right on. You from the past or future, man? Yes. Uh, future, I think. You reply. What year is this exactly? 1979. Summer of love, 12 years in. Let me ask you something about the future. He says with a dramatic removal of sunglasses. They ever bring back Bainbridge County? I love that show, man. You chuckle. Yeah, you know they did a reboot just last year. What's a reboot? Yes. Before you can answer, the front door swings open. Some kind of boss hippie steps through, wearing an impeccably tailored tie-dye tuxedo with tails, and a top hat with a very top cut off and a flower growing through it. He closes his eyes and savors the fresh air. He's much younger, but he looks a lot like your neighbor. Are you the owner of this house? You ask. He opens his eyes. Owner? He repeats with a mix of amusement and disgust. What are you? A bank? His gang of freethinkers giggle in unison. I have lived here since I was a boy. Yes, before that, my father lived here since he was a boy. And before that, his father built the place with his own hands. Does that give me the right to call this house my property? Yes? You guess? The past is the past. It's all an illusion. It's nothing. He preaches. You can't see it. You can't hear it. You can't touch it. He places a hand on your shoulder. Can you? I think maybe you can. You say. You say. Bah. You people hanging on to such boring 20th century notions. Follow me. He says. I think I might know something that will change your perspective. He seems so different. But you're certain this is your neighbor. He might be able to help you get home, but it might not be wise just to blurt it out. He may not believe you. If you follow him, skip to chapter 28. If you tell him about the time machine, skip to chapter 29. Chapter 26. There's a loud pop and a flash. No flash photography, please says a tour guide a few yards away from you. She's guiding a group of 10 or 11 people. You're still in the basement, but it's changed. It's much bigger and better lit. It's been converted into a museum of sorts. The dusty historical artifacts have been replaced by inventions your neighbor presumably made over the course of his life, as well as various plaques, statues, and newspaper articles honoring him. The time machine is still here, but now it's under a glass case. Next to it, sit glass cases containing time machine marks 2 through 9. On one wall, there's a trick mirror that makes it look like you're standing next to your neighbor. Above it, it says, Mr. Oberchuk's Strange Companion, Fact or Fiction. You read the inscription next to the mirror. It says historical accounts of Mr. Oberchuk's visits often refer to a traveling companion. However, no descriptions or picture of this person have ever been recorded. Many theories have been suggested for the identity of this person, but the subject remains unsolved. It could be anyone from any time. It could even be you. You look in the mirror for a moment before the tour guide breaks your train of thought. 
And over here, you could see Mr. Overchuck's Nobel Prize, which he won in 2036 for his work in near-light speed propulsion. Continues the tour guide. You politely raise your hand before rudely interrupting. Uh, excuse me, does the time machine still work? The tour guide clears her throat frustratedly. <clears throat> Please save any questions for the end of the tour. But no, it'd be much too dangerous to have a functional time machine out in the open like this. These are all replicas. You press on. Is there any way I could talk to Mr. Oberchek? See you around. The tour guide stares at you blankly. Mr. Oberchek has been dead for many years. However, he did have a time machine. You never know when he might show to wow some lucky tour group and answer questions. She winks playfully at the crowd. Then her face turns deadly serious as she says, At the end of the tour. If you wait till the end of the tour, skip to chapter 44. If you break away from the group to try and find someone to answer your questions, skip to chapter 45. Chapter 27 You've seen enough movies to know that time machines cause nothing but trouble. It is your responsibility, as a citizen of the universe, to destroy this box. You look around the room for something to smash it with, but find nothing. The ground itself is best suited for the task. You pick up the box, which is surprisingly light as it's mostly hollow. You rise it all the way above your head, scraping it against the low ceiling, and slam it onto the stone floor with all your might. It shudders, but does not break. You reel up and give it a good stop. That does it. The top piece of metal breaks loose and crushes the electronic components under the weight of your own foot. Sparks fly. You hear a loud electric hum. Your vision seems to fade in and out. No, that's not it. It's not your vision. It's all of reality that fades in and out. This carries on for about a minute before resolving itself. When you're sure it's safe, you leave the basement. To your surprise, the night air greets you as you exit the stairwell. You check the time. It's been 12 hours since you got to the house. You cross the street back to your house, only to find that you've locked yourself out. You go around to the back of the house. You remember the last time you lost your keys and how you spent an hour finessing that certain window to open it from the outside. Now that you know the trick of it, it should go much faster. You get to the window to discover that someone is already opening the window from the inside. To your further surprise, that someone is you. And as if all that wasn't stressful enough, the universe blows up. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 28 he leads you up to the stairs to an unfurnished, unadorned room. In the middle of the room, a very old woman in purple and green robes is on her knees. In front of her sits a wide bowl of water on a bamboo mat. The boss hippie leaves you in the room and shuts the door behind him without saying anything. You try to follow him, but the door is locked. Think a comforting thought and wash away your ego in the bowl. The old woman instructs you. What? You reply. Think a comforting thought and wash away your ego in the bowl, she says. She mimes washing her face with the water from the bowl. You suppose this is the only way to get out of this room. 
If you think of beautiful flowers, skip to chapter 31. If you think of calming ocean waves, skip to chapter 32. If you think of free will, the pleasant notion that you are in control of your own destiny, skip to chapter 33. Chapter 28 He leads you up to the stairs to an unfurnished, unadorned room. In the middle of the room, a very old woman in purple and green robes is on her knees. In front of her sits a wide bowl of water on a bamboo mat. The boss hippie leaves you in the room and shuts the door behind him without saying anything. You try to follow him, but the door is locked. Think a comforting thought. And wash away your ego in the bowl, the old woman instructs you. What? You reply. Think a comforting thought and wash away your ego in the bowl, she says. She mimes washing her face with the water from the bowl. You suppose this is the only way to get out of this room. If you think of beautiful flowers, skip to chapter 31. If you think of calming ocean waves, skip to chapter 32. If you think of free will, the pleasant notion that you are in control of your own destiny, skip to chapter 33. Chapter 30 The sun sets by the time you arrive at Fisher's Bog. It is a disgusting place. It smells. The plants are ugly. Even the bog coppers look like giant moths instead of butterflies. You never knew there was so much nature in your town. And to see the place, you're actually glad. A nearby sign reads, Attention, do not allow yourself to sink into the bog. Rumors about its mystical properties are urban legend. Next to that, you see a lone stone pillar, housing a clock that displays the date, year included. And an inscription reading, to help weary travelers get their bearings, placed here by the friends of HG. You lower yourself into the deepest part of the bog you can find. Gross, it's so gross. You didn't think it was possible to smell things while holding your breath, but it is. You feel the movement of nasty little bog creatures swimming around you. It's starting to get difficult to hold your breath. How long is it supposed to take? A dark tunnel forms around your field of vision. You're about to pass out. Suddenly your vision is restored. You see your life pass before you. Your first birthday. Your first day of school. The first time you saw Bainbridge County. You don't know if this is the bog or if your life is just flashing before your eyes because you're about to die. You have to assume the first. If you wait until what feels like the perfect moment, skip to chapter 34. If you wait one moment longer than that, skip to chapter 35. Chapter 31 You cup your hands and reach into the bowl. You bring the water to your face, and everything fades away. The room, the old woman, yourself. It's all gone. Through some ancient magic, you have become something new. You perceive the world in whatever way you can. You feel your roots reaching into the dirt and the warmth of the sun on your petals. You are Syringa vulgaris, the common lilac. Your human senses have left you, but in their place, you have gained a new way to understand your surroundings. You are aware that you are in a garden, 
surrounded by your lavender brethren. But you are not like them. You have something they do not. You have free will. If you photosynthesize, skip to chapter 42. If you do not photosynthesize, skip to chapter 43. Chapter 32 You cup your hands and reach into the bowl. You bring the water to your face, and everything fades away. The room, the old woman, yourself. It's all gone. Through some ancient magic, you have become something new. You are a shark. There's something oddly familiar about it. Almost as if this has happened to you once before, when you were a kid. You try to remember for a second, but soon your shark brain takes over. You go on to live a mostly happy shark life, swimming, eating fish, eating garbage. A few years down the line, you see a group of dolphins attacking a human. You feel sympathy for the two-legged mammal. Dolphins are always ganging up on you too. You rush in to thwart the attack, but you are quickly outnumbered. The blowhole bullies bludgeon you until you and the humans sink into the murky deep together. You hate dolphins. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 33 You cup your hands and reach into the bowl. You bring the water to your face, and everything fades away. The room, the old woman, yourself. It's all gone. Through some ancient magic, you have become something new. You are the President of the United States of America. Specifically, you are Jimmy Carter. You're in the Oval Office surrounded by staffers. There's a depressed air in the room. Everyone knows that you're on your way out. You can tell they're trying to hide the fact that they're mad at you. If you're trying to find your body to swap back, skip to chapter 40. If you take on the responsibilities of your new office and run the country, skip to chapter 41. Chapter 34 You rise from the bog and take a deep gasp for breath. Immediately, you notice the smell. Hamburgers. You look around. The bog has vanished. You know where you are. You're at the meat burger on Maple. That's why you had never heard of Fisher's Bog. They paved it over and put in a meat burger. And a taco temple and a grocery store and a bunch of condos. The clock, however, is still there. You check the time. You're early. You're one year early. Maybe you should just go home and pretend to be your own long-lost identical twin. No, that would never work. You think about the time machine. Has it been invented yet? And what would happen if you pressed forward? You'd probably overshoot it and end up in the future. Is it worth the risk? The safest thing is probably just to lay low until you catch up with the timeline and can resume your normal life. If you lay low, skip to chapter 36. If you seek the time machine, skip to chapter 37. Chapter 35 You try to raise yourself out of the bog. You don't have the strength. You waited too long and you're fading fast. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1.
Chapter 36 You decide to play it safe. You can't risk interfering with the timeline. You're going to have to move away and assume a new identity to avoid any risk of altering your past. You wrap your phone and any form of ID in a meat burger bag and bury them in a spot you know won't be disturbed for the next year. Over the course of the year, you find the world to not be a very friendly place for people who have no past. You have a hard time finding work or living spaces when you have no money and can't explain who you are. You spend a lot of time in homeless shelters. Times are hard. You spend most of the year hungry, cold, and afraid. You stake out your house when it finally comes to an end. You see yourself leaving for the house across the street and the time machine inside it. With your past self out of the way, you return home. Nothing ever tastes as good as the leftover taco temple in your fridge that day. You feel a newfound appreciation for everything you have. You think about the time machine next door, and what you're supposed to do with it. You decide to leave it alone. Forget the universe. You don't ever want to hear of that wretched device again. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 37 You make your way back to the old house. Luckily, the bog dropped you off in the morning, so it's only the afternoon by the time you finish the long walk. You head for the familiar basement door. You're relieved to discover that the code for the padlock hasn't changed. But your heart sinks when you go into the basement. It's totally empty, save for some abandoned exercise equipment. No artifacts, no time machine, no trace of anything. Except a door leading to the main house. You try the knob. It's not locked. You enter the door and go upstairs into the kitchen, which is a whole lot of stainless steel, totally pristine. It looks like it's never been used. It doesn't sound like your neighbor is home. So you wander through the rest of the house. It's all the same. Everything is nice and totally untouched. The walls are covered in paintings of old white men with strange hair. Finally, you find yourself in the study. This is a room that has been lived in. Every surface, including portions of the floor, are covered with books, discarded notes, and taco temple bags. There's a small television in the corner playing a VHS copy of Time Cop. You look closely at one of the mounds of trash and see that it's actually a desk. Sifting through the refuse, you find detailed diagrams of the time machine. Suddenly you hear noises from another part of the house. Your neighbor is home. If you steal the designs and attempt to build your own time machine, skip to chapter 38. If you wait for your neighbor and ask for help, skip to chapter 39. Chapter 38 You steal the designs and duck out of the house, remembering the way you came. You take care to lock the basement door behind you. When you're safely away from the house, you look at the designs. They're surprisingly simple. You don't know how the machine works, but you see how all the parts go together. And it seems like you can get them all at any electronics store. You get the parts and go to Jensen's Park, because they have tables you can work on, and because you never go to Jensen's Park. So there's little risk of running into yourself. Construction of the time machine takes about 20 minutes. The designs are simple enough that it's about as hard as putting together an especially difficult Lego set. At no point does it occur to you that this seems too easy. With a finished time machine sitting on the park table before you, you take a deep breath 
without further hesitation, press the forward button. Everything slows down. The sun flickers like a fluorescent light. The park expands and contracts. There is an odd sound, like you're inside a giant Tupperware container being burped. When it all finally stops, you're still in the park. Only now, there's also a large Tyrannosaurus Rex. Huh, you think. It looks so weird with feathers. Then it eats you. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 39 Your neighbor arrives and you desperately try to explain that you came here because of this time machine, but your words fall on deaf ears. He escorts you forcibly out of the house. Yeah, yeah, he says. Another one coming to mock crazy old man Overchuck because he thinks he invented a time machine. I should have never warned you all about the flood at the town meeting. I don't think you're crazy, I know you're right, you shout. He slams the door on your face. Wait, you know me, we met in 1979. He throws open the door. He starts fading away in front of your very eyes. What have you done? He accuses. You turn around and see yourself in your front yard across the street. Your past self's life is irreversibly altered by this shocking image and never becomes your present self. You have created a paradox that destroys the universe. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 40 You have to get back into your body. You can't live the rest of your life as an old man. It's, it's weird and it hurts. I have to go, you mumble as you move for the door. Go, asks one of your advisors, a handsome woman in a charcoal pantsuit. Mr. President, you have a speech in ten minutes. You stir blankly. You don't know how to get out of this. You give the speech. Millions of people watch you on TV. But you're not nervous. Years away from your own time and outside of your own body, it's incredibly hard to process anything that happens to you. You go about your daily duties as president. It's easier to maintain cover than you thought. At least for now. It's mainly saying yes or no to things. In one week, you have some vacation time. You schedule a trip to your hometown. The week passes quickly, and before you know it, you're walking up to the front of the old house, with the full force of the Secret Service behind you. The sitar player runs inside in a panic when he sees you. A few seconds later, the boss hippie in the tie-dye tuxedo walks out. Um, Mr. President, he says nervously. Oh, what an honor to meet you. What brings you to our little commune today? You wave your hand, a sign for the Secret Service to wait outside, and march directly into the house. You sit down at the dining room table. He sits across from you. You know why I'm here, you declare. Yes, he admits. Well, we weren't certain, but we had some idea. You came up from the life swap and started yelling at us about human rights violations. Where am I? You're in the backyard giving a lecture on peanut farming. You go to the window and sure enough, you see yourself talking very intensely about peanut cultivation techniques to the group of young women you saw dancing last time you were here. Put me back, you command. It's not that easy, he counters. Put me back. Normally the life swap is supposed to give you a glimpse into someone else's life. You're not supposed to stay there. We don't know what could happen if we tried it again. The consequences could be dire. I don't care about the consequences, I just want my old life back. 
Reluctantly, he leads you and your Jimmy Carter-controlled body upstairs. You're a bit disappointed that Jimmy Carter doesn't seem as upset as you are. You could have used the support. You guess he's just happy to have a break from being president. You're back in the room with the old woman. She and the hippie whisper at each other for a second. Finally, she says, Okay, we think we know how to do this. What I need you both to do is to think about a home, and then dip your hands into the bowl, and wash your faces at the same time. Once again, you cup your hands and reach into the bowl. You bring the water to your face, and everything fades away. The room, the old woman, the hippie, Jimmy Carter, and yourself. It's all gone. And then, it's all back. Everything is back and more. You see everything that ever was, or ever could be. In an instant, you become aware of all the different ways the story could have gone. You see yourself having grand adventures through time, or being eaten by a T-Rex, or becoming the ruler of an alien civilization. You also see yourself destroying the universe more times than could possibly be interesting. In this one moment, you are everything, the next you are nothing. Your consciousness is unable to reconnect with your body, and you simply disperse into the ether. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 41 The book stops here. You're the president of one of the most powerful nations on Earth, and you're not going to let any excuses get in the way. You could do serious good, not just for America, but the entire world. You completely disregard the re-election campaign and spend the next year getting things done. You have absolutely no idea how American government works on this scale, and you fail most of the time, but the effort is inspiring, perhaps out of respect for the turnaround you made in the last year, perhaps out of some strange curiosity for what you do with another four years. You win the re-election. In your second term, you get the hang of running the country and go on to become one of the most well-respected presidents in history. In tribute to the man whose life you stole, you spend your post-presidency doing much the same thing that he did. You even win the same Nobel Prize he did, but you never live to see the time machine again. Whatever secret to longevity the real Jimmy Carter had, you don't. You pass away peacefully in your sleep at 86. Sometimes you wondered, what will happen when it's invented? You also wondered if Jimmy Carter's mind went into your body the same time you went into his. You leave this world secure in the knowledge that you did what you could do to make everyone a little more comfortable while you were here. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 42 you absorb the cosmic energy radiating from the sun. It is satisfying on a level that you have never felt before. All the thoughts and responsibilities of human life wash away in that glorious light. Every ounce of energy you have is spent living in the purest sense of the word. It is a blissful existence, and long after you're gone, your seed has been harvested, and your unique gift spread to a new generation of lilacs. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 43 You feel the sunlight hit you, and simply let it bounce off. 
absorbing no energy. You wither and you die. The gardener who removes your body has no idea of the significance of the dead plant he carries. All the potential for world-changing actions is left untapped at the bottom of a trash can. You're not even used for compost. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter 44 The inventor, Mr. Oberchuk, is your best shot at getting home and fulfilling your original plan with the time machine. You'll stick with the tour until he shows up. The tour guide finishes up and leads the group out of the basement museum. The old house, as well as a few houses next to it, has been torn down and replaced with a massive futuristic facility. In big metallic letters at the top of the building it says, Oberchuk Discoveries. Now if you follow me into the lab, says the tour guide, we could see some real-life tests being conducted by Dr. Oberchuk. I thought you said Dr. Oberchuk was dead, you say. You don't bother to raise your hand this time. Mr. Oberchuk, inventor of the time machine, is dead. His granddaughter, Dr. Oberchuk, is alive and well, she clarifies. And please, if you have any more questions, don't be afraid to consult your pamphlet. She hands you a pamphlet. The title reads, A History of Excellence. You skim till you find what you're looking for. Gerard Oberchuk passed away in 2062, after a long lifetime of incredible scientific achievement. Soon after, his son Lawrence Oberchuk became fearful of what might happen if any of the time machines fell into the wrong hands. He had them hidden away in secret locations, to this day known only to him and his daughter, Dr. Linda Oberchuk, current head of Oberchuk Discoveries. You absent-mindedly follow the group into the lab while reading the pamphlet. When you look up, Dr. Oberchuk is doing her experiment. She points a giant laser at a life-size dummy. The red bolt finds its target, which catches fire in a well-contained but satisfying explosion. The group cheers. She gives a big fake smile and a thumbs up. If you hang back to see if she can help you get back home, skip to chapter 46. If you continue with your original plan to wait for time traveling, Mr. Oberchuk, skip to chapter 47. Chapter 45 There's got to be something or someone around here that can get you back home. You're not going to stick around and wait. The tour guide finishes up and leads the group out of the basement museum. The old house, as well as a few houses next to it, has been torn down and replaced with a massive futuristic facility. In big metallic letters at the top of the building it says, Oberchuck Discoveries. You see your opportunity. You hang back as they enter the lab. The door shuts behind them and you're safe to explore the exterior of the building. It's a massive tangle of metal and weird angles, but finally, you find another entrance. The door is locked. It requires a code. Could it be this easy? You think, as you enter 1985 into the keypad. The answer is yes, apparently. The door opens and you step inside. You see two fluorescently lit hallways and a unisex restroom. If you go down the hallway on the right, skip to chapter 54. If you go down the hallway on the left, skip to chapter 55. If you go to the restroom, skip to chapter 56. Chapter 46 You hang back while the rest of the group moves on. Dr. Oberchek seems a bit nervous about you staying behind. As soon as they're out of earshot, you blurt, I came from the past in your grandfather's time machine and I need you to get me back home. She looks at you incredulously. Yeah, you and a lot of people, she says. Why should I believe you out of anybody else? You search your pockets. 
Um, okay, I've got my phone. That's pretty outdated today, right? You suggest. You hand her the phone. She turns it over in her hands. Hmm, it's in too good a condition to be an antique. If it's a replica, it's a remarkably well-made one. But not impossibly well-made. She assesses. Suddenly you hear footsteps coming toward you. Dr. Oberchuk tosses you a small device with a button on it. Press the button, she commands. You do. You turn invisible. The tour guide rounds the corner, looking around furiously. Have you seen that troublemaker that's been disrupting my group? She snaps. I, I don't see anybody, replies Dr. Oberchuk. The tour guide continues to look around suspiciously. Will that be all? Says the doctor. Yes, doctor. Sorry for disturbing you. The tour guide says and goes back to her tour group in shape. You press the button to become visible again. This doesn't mean I believe you yet, Dr. Oberchuk warns. Tell me about the day you used the time machine. As soon as you tell her the date, she stops you. She leads you through the lab back into her private office. It's a cozy little room with lots of books and a modest computer. She loads a text document on the screen. You notice the title is the date you left. She reads, Around 10 a.m., I heard a loud pop coming from the basement. It sounded as though someone was using the Mark I. What's more disturbing is that the outside door was open. Someone out there is stranded in time, and I have no way of finding them. I must remember to get a better lock. She stops reading. Granddad wrote that the day you left. You're telling the truth. He never did get a better lock, by the way. He was so careless. I just knew one day one of these crazies coming in here wouldn't actually be crazy. So you help me? You ask? Yes. She exclaims. When Granddad died... Dad had the time machines hidden so no one else will be able to use them. Luckily, one of them is here in this facility, the Mark IV. She turns to her bookshelf and removes five books in sequence. After the fifth, the wall opens, revealing another room. It has thick carpet and soundproofing on the walls. The only thing inside is a four-foot marble pillar and the time machine resting on top. This one is a metal box with the words Mark IV written on top in three dials. Nothing more. Granddad was a real minimalist, huh? You comment. What? She says. Oh yeah, the dials. Uh, he had a brief flirtation with a touchscreen, but mostly he kept the controls on remotes. Those were cremated with him. But you know how to use this one without the remote? You ask. Yeah, she says. I mean, I've never actually used it before, but I've studied it my whole life. Plus, one of the cool features about the Mark IV is that no matter where it sends you, it'll automatically equip you for the time you're in. Clothes, currency, everything you need. It kind of sounds like you think I might end up in the wrong time, Doc. Oh, you'll be fine, I promise. I'm pretty sure, at least. Now stand at that spot. You go to the spot she points to. She turns the first two dials, counts down from five, and turns the third. You hear a click and a slight hum, like an old TV being turned off. Skip to chapter 51. Chapter 47 You wait through the rest of the tour. Even if Overchuck doesn't believe you, you can at least grab him before he pushes the button to go back. You're pretty sure that would work. The guide shows off Overchuck Discovery's other latest inventions. A shrink ray, anti-gravity boots, hard light holograms. To be fair, it is a pretty amazing future. You try to figure out what year it is without asking directly. You narrow it down to somewhere between 
2109 and 2120. The tour ends and the guide hypes the crowd. Are you ready for your special guest? She teases. There's a sound like a loud thunderclap. Just like the one you heard at your house when this all started. Then the room fills with fog. The lights go low. When they come back up, a figure steps through the mist. It's... It's an animatronic puppet of your neighbor. It tells lame jokes about how the future is strange and confusing. It does not appear to have actually traveled through time to get here. It asks the crowd if they have any questions. If you ask a puppet how to get home, skip to chapter 48. If you fly into a rage and attack the puppet, skip to chapter 49. Chapter 48 you ask the puppet where to find a time machine. It's an animatronic puppet that knows how to say about five different things, so its answer is less useful than you'd hope. Forget this, you think. Skip to chapter 49. Chapter 49. You hurl yourself at the animatronic inventor and pummel it in a shower of fists. Your punches are mostly ineffective on the metal puppet's exterior, but when you ran into it, you knocked it off its axis a little. It shuts down. You consider that a win. Security considers it vandalism. You're thrown out onto the street. You wander around the future a bit. It's... kind of disappointing. You're in the suburbs, and it turns out that no matter what time you're in, suburbs just look like suburbs. You even see a meat burger. What a wonderland this future is. You enter the meat burger. You're hungry and you could use a little familiar comfort. It looks exactly the same as it always has on the inside, with only two exceptions. There's more ads plastered around, and the menu has... evolved. It still has all the meat burger classics you remember. Potato zappers, onion funsies, what have you. But there's also weird new items. Octopods. These are real tiny octopi filled with some kind of fruit puree. Corn burgers, like corn dogs, but for burgers. Live bees. Cup full of live bees, genetically engineered without stingers or wings. You approach the counter and order a classic meat burger from the greasy teen working in the register. That'll be $22.45. Are you paying with cash, card, or thumb? You look down. Next to the credit card reader, you see a thumb-shaped pad underneath a small screen. Thumb. You say curiously. You press your thumb to the pad. After a moment of scanning, you're surprised to see the screen light up and say, Match found. Next, it displays a picture of someone who looks a lot like you, but with an eye patch. Thank you. The teen recites, handing you your food. You take it to a table and unwrap the burger. There's a commercial playing on the bun. You think you might be hallucinating. You look around at the other diners. All the food has ads playing on them. You watch yours. It shows a well-dressed man in an office that may or may not be a fake backdrop. Have you or someone you know been taken advantage of by a corporation? Triple J Law Firm is here to help. For years, we've helped the little guy fight back against those bigger than Thawne. If you've ever been injured, cheated, hurt, disenfranchised, lied to, or otherwise damaged by a corporation, 
Triple J can get you the compensation you deserve. Press on the sesame seed to speak to an associate today. The ad freezes on the man pointing to a specific sesame seed on your button. Lied to, you think? You press the seed. Skip to chapter 50. Chapter 50 The ad vanishes from the bun and is replaced with the word dialing. Soon, you're talking to a lawyer via a video call on a hamburger bun. You tell him about how the tour guide promised a meeting with Oberchuk and didn't deliver. It turns out, Triple J was already working on a class action lawsuit for that very reason. You discover that your fellow members of the suit are just as obsessed with time travel as you are. Though you don't think any of them are really displaced travelers like you are. You're pleased to note that your lawyers have listed Mr. Oberchuk as a defendant in the case. Being dead, they argue, is no excuse for a man with a time machine to not show up in court. It was a little tricky figuring out how to subpoena him, but after extensive research, they found a newspaper article from 2045 that mentions him traveling to New York in 2173. So the subpoena is left with Western Union to deliver then. No coward, Mr. Oberchuk does show up to meet with your lawyers. You explain to him what happened, and for the first time, someone actually believes you. He decides to settle out of court. He'll pay the other members of the suit some undisclosed sum. The deal he makes with you is, he'll send you home, but only if you promise never to get involved with time machines again. You agree. You try to live a normal life when you get home, but it won't be years until the time machine's existence becomes public knowledge. Having this insane life-changing event that you can't talk about with anyone always puts you at a distance with people. But at the end of the day, no universes were destroyed. That you know of. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 51. You've traveled through time again. You're not home. In fact, you're very, very far from home. You're wearing a poncho and a Stetson, and you're in the Old West. You feel the weight of a gun on your hip. Thirty feet across from you stands a filthy man with a gun in his hip. He shouts, There you are, you yellow-bellied coward. I was a-thinking you were too coward to show. You hope this is not what you think it is. But a crowd has gathered to watch you. So you don't like the odds. Someone in the crowd shouts, DRAW! If you shoot now, skip to chapter 52. If you shoot now, skip to chapter 53. Chapter 52. You unholster your weapon and fire at your opponent. You are faster, but you only hit him in his left shoulder and his guns in his right hand. While you're figuring all this out, he carefully takes aim and fires. Life in the Old West isn't for everybody. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter one. Chapter 53. You hesitate, giving your opponent the chance to fire first. He misses wildly, 
the bullet flies far over your head. This gives you the time to aim carefully and take your shot. You hit him square in the chest. You are relieved to learn that he was a vicious outlaw, wanted for some truly heinous crimes. He had issued an open challenge to any regulator that thought they could best him in a duel. When you arrived, people assumed that was you. With the money from the bounty and your skill with a revolver, you become the respected face of law and order throughout the Nevada Territory. It's an exciting life full of action and adventure, but darn it if you don't miss a good night sitting on the couch and watching Bainbridge County. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter 54 You take the hall on the right. You walk about 30 feet before coming to an automatic door. On the other side you find three scientists in lab coats. They stand at a computer console. In front of them, a large disc sits on the floor. The rest of the room is empty. One of them, a man with gigantic ears holding a clipboard, looks up and says, Are you a Z-test subject? Uh, no, you reply. You wonder if you should have lied, since it might be a little tricky to explain why you're really here. The scientists murmured to each other. You can make out the words, Idiot. And it's supposed to be here an hour ago. The man turns to you again. How'd you like to make 200 buckaroonies and serve an important purpose to scientific progress? I really don't have time, you say. I need to find a way to get home. I came here in Mr. Oberchuk's time machine from the year- Yeah, you and a million others, snorts another one of the scientists. A woman covered in tattoos. If you help us and the tests are successful, says the man with the ears, Dr. Oberchuk will want to meet with you. She's the only person here that would know anything about that. Well, what do you want me to do? You ask. Stand on that disc there, says the third scientist. She's jittery. Her eyes move way too much. We're working on a teleportation device, the man with the clipboard says. If our calculations are correct, when do we count down from five? You should dematerialize and then rematerialize in another room here. And what could happen if your calculations are incorrect? You ask. Oh, a lot of things, he says, too excited. Before you could follow up, the wired woman speaks. Teleportation in five, four, three. The tattooed woman says. Wait, did we check the... Two. Um, is all the man says back. One. You dematerialize. Skip to chapter 58. Chapter 55. You take the hall on the left. You walk about 30 feet before coming to an automatic door. On the other side, you find three young scientists in lab coats. They stand at a computer console. In front of them, a large disc sits on the floor. The rest of the room is empty. One of them, a woman with thick glasses holding a clipboard, looks up and says, Hey, are you the test subject? No, you reply. You wonder if you should have lied, since it might be a little tricky to explain why you're really here. The scientists murmur to each other. You can make out the words, Idiot. And, supposed to be here an hour ago. The woman turns to you again. Um, how'd you like to make 200 bucks and serve an important purpose to scientific progress? I, I really don't have time, you say. 
I need to find a way to get home. I came here in Mr. Oberchuk's time machine from the year- <laughs> Yeah, you and a million others. <laughs> Snorts another one of the scientists, a very skinny man with wild brown hair. If you help us and the tests are successful, says the woman with glasses, Dr. Oberchuk will want to meet with you. She's the only person here that would know anything about that. What do you need me to do? You ask. Stand on the disc right there, says the third scientist. He's a severely tall man. He has to bend at almost a 90 degree angle to work with the console. We're working on a teleportation device, the woman with the clipboard says. If our calculations are correct, and we count down from five, you should dematerialize and rematerialize in another room here. And what could happen if your calculations are incorrect? You ask. Oh, a lot of things, she says, too excited. Before you could follow up, the tall man speaks. Teleportation in five, four, three. The wild hair man says, Wait, did we check the two? Um, one. You dematerialize. Skip to chapter 57. Chapter 56 Well, nature calls. You do your business in the restroom. You wash your hands, I hope. And now you're back in the entryway with two hallways. If you go down the hallway on the right, skip to chapter 54. If you go down the hallway on the left, skip to chapter 55. Chapter 57 Your body rematerializes. It's an odd, tingling sensation. You're in what appears to be a large, well-furnished studio apartment. There's a nice big television, a comfortable-looking king-size bed, and a giant window where small, tentacled beings eat bags of live shrimp and watch you. You don't think this is the other room you were supposed to teleport into. You don't even think you're on the right planet. The TV turns on. It shows an octopus in a suit. The octopus makes a horrible, gurgling screech sound. And a few seconds in, a computerized dubbed voice takes over. Greetings, human, says the voice. My name is John. We hacked into your teleportation feed to provide you the opportunity to live in our beautiful exotic zoo. You will be treated well. Do not attempt to escape. The footage ends. You start planning your escape. There's no door. The window looks pretty thick, too. Suddenly, a small sled opens in the wall. A pair of tentacles slides a plastic tray of food into your cell. If you bide your time to gather as much information as possible, skip to chapter 59. If you grab the tentacles to try to force your captors to release you, skip to chapter 60. Chapter 58 Your body rematerializes. It's an odd, tingling sensation. You're on the bridge of a spaceship complete with young ensigns at the controls and an oversized captain's chair. A very cool woman sits in the chair. She looks tough with her rakish good looks and scar running over one eye. She wears a leather vest and a gun, which you assume to be a laser gun on her hip. Mots Garrett, she curses. Another one. I thought you said you fixed the transporter. She stares daggers at a small balding man, furiously typing into a keyboard. I thought I did. He defends. This is the first incident we've had in months. Everyone on the crew boos and throws garbage at him. 
Everybody seems real casual. It's a lot less clean than a ship you'd see in a movie. Hi, I'm Captain Olivia Crane of the Starship Hazard, she says, extending a hand. Uh, sorry we ruined your life. Well, what do you mean? Can't you send me back? I'm afraid not. She says, Dr. Crushing here, she gestures to the bald man, thought he could extend the range of our transporters by picking backing on other transporters' frequencies. All he ended up doing was redirecting the frequencies here. So every once in a while, some poor soul goes into a transporter thinking they're going to work or their ship or whatever, and instead they wind up here with no way of getting back. Sometimes we get lucky and they're close. Other times, they're on the other side of the galaxy. Where are you from? Earth, you say. Never heard of it, she says. Sounds boring, and it doesn't sound like we can even get you. You're welcome to stay with us. We could always use more bodies in our line of work. Which is, you ask, space piracy, she answers. The good kind, steal from the rich, give to the poor, that sort of thing. At this, a grubby-looking teen says, And we are poor. And then cackles wildly. Olivia throws a soda can at his head. Like I say, she continues, you're welcome to join us or we can drop you off at the nearest spaceport. Our one rule is that you never, ever, touch that machine. She points to a small glass ball attached to a single red button. That's our doomsday device. You have a doomsday device? You say. That doesn't seem like good guy piracy. Oh, another bleeding heart, she scoffs. Every ship has a doomsday device these days. It wouldn't be safe to fly without one. How does it work? You ask. She starts. It sends a particle back in time five seconds to collide with itself, which creates a paradox to destroy the universe. You finish as if you haven't heard that phrase enough today. There must be some way to use that doomsday device to get home. If you try to use the doomsday device to send yourself back in time, skip to chapter 63. If you abandon your boring time travel mission and accept your new life as a space pirate, skip to chapter 64. Chapter 59 You decide not to attack right away. It's better to wait and find some weakness you can exploit. The tentacles leave the tray of food and slither back out of the room. Moments later, an alarm goes off. You put your ear to the wall and hear a struggle. Your neighbor is trying to escape. You hear a loud thud like a body hitting the floor. Sounds like they didn't make it. The next day, the slat in the wall is sealed. All your food is teleported in from then on. Your captors had realized that giving you food directly was a weakness that could be exploited. You never get a chance as good as you had that first day. You never get another chance at all. You spend the rest of your life in the zoo. Occasionally, they'll teleport a companion into your room. Sometimes a human, sometimes not. They never stay permanently. For some reason or another, you're always separated, but you appreciate the temporary breaks from loneliness. Sometimes you reflect on your life and think of how much worse it could have been. At least you're alive. Still you think, ah, I wish I'd never gotten involved with that dang time machine. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter one. Chapter 60 You grab the tentacle through the small hole in the wall and pull with all your strength. To your surprise, an entire octopus comes right through. It falls to the floor with a splat. Where am I? You scream at the creature. 
It emits a loud screech and sends jets of black ink flying at your face. You close your eyes just in time. You open them again when you feel the ink flow stop. The octopus is trying to scurry back to the open slat, but something seems to be holding it down. You step on the nearest tentacle. It screeches again and contracts as if to shoot more ink, but it's dry. Any attempt at communication is pointless, so you search the cephalopod. It struggles against you, but it's very weak and slow. You find something attached to one of its suckers. It looks like a remote control. You press buttons until something happens. After making a call to another octopus, turning the lights off and on, and replaying the introduction message on the TV, finally something useful happens. The wall with the slat opens completely, giving you access to the outside hallway. You run out. Your first step outside sends you rocketing to the ceiling. The gravity here is much less powerful than on Earth. It was the artificial gravity in your room keeping the octopus down. You develop a kind of shuffling movement that allows you to get around safely and find your way to a door. It's octopus sized, so you have to get on the ground to get out. You look up at the bright orange sky. You take a deep breath. You're pleased to discover that the air is breathable, but it smells all wrong. The zoo itself actually looks a lot like an Earth zoo. You see concession stands, tour guides, and eight-legged cargo shorts. Signs with pictures of weird creatures, aliens you realize, on them. Suddenly a group of octopi guards come running towards you. They're armed with thin metal donuts. At least that's what it looks like until one of them squeezes their donut and sends a tranquilizing dart hurtling toward you. The dart goes wide, but the next won't. If you rush to the guards, head on. Skip to chapter 61. If you attempt to flee the guards, skip to chapter 62. Chapter 61 You dig in your heels and launch yourself at the guards. You feel like a bullet, shooting through the air at them. You connect with the first guard, and it's out cold. The rest are no more difficult. They are simply no match for your superior size, strength, and speed. A few minutes later, a larger, more heavily armed squadron of guards arrive, and something curious happens. Many of the customers at the zoo join the fight. On your side. Later you would learn that there had been a growing unrest among the civilian population. All they needed was a leader they could get behind to spark a revolution. You fit that role nicely. In your search for a way home, you defeat whatever forces the government throws at you. Before you can really grasp what's going on, the octopi look to you as the only remaining figure with any kind of authority. When you stumble upon the translator that made the introductory video you saw in the zoo, the first message they communicate to you is the request that you take over as a planet's ruler. It takes some getting used to, but eventually you get comfortable living in an octopus world. You never learn how to pronounce its real name though. You live in the kind of luxury that only happens when you have an entire world. Okay, I'm gonna read that more quickly. You live in the kind of luxury that only happens when you have an entire world serving you. And though you miss having relationships with other humans, you find the octopi to be a fascinating people with a rich history. You never do find a way back to Earth or your own time, but then you didn't blow up the universe either. Years later, surrounded by the loyal subjects on your deathbed, that doesn't seem so bad. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter one.
Chapter 62 You turn and jump as high as you can. It turns out this is a lot higher than you expected. You keep going and going. Soon, the guards are no more than specks below you. Your climb starts to slow. You finally reach the crest of your jump, only to be caught by a giant bird. The bird carries you gently in its beak, flying even higher into the citrus-colored sky. It flings you into the air and quickly snaps after you. It thought you would fall back into its hungry mouth. Instead, you keep soaring higher and higher. The air is getting thin. Even in this gravity, you don't know how you're going to survive the impact, and you're still not going down. You slow down a bit, but you don't stop. You're still moving away from the planet. You're broken free of its gravitational pull and start to drift towards space. It's very cold now, and the air is getting very hard to breathe. You struggle as hard as you can to move back toward the planet, but with nothing to push against, your efforts are useless. Your life ends here, miles above a foreign planet and light years away from home. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter one. Chapter 63 You explain your situation to the captain. She's sympathetic, but says, Our doomsday device doesn't work like a normal time machine. And even if it did, we'd have no way of getting you back to... What was it? Earth? You would just end up stranded in the void. Actually... Interjects Dr. Crushing. I could redirect the doomsday device to another target. A human target... You can send me back in time? You ask. Yes, with some minor reprogramming. He says. But we'd still have no way of getting you to your home planet. Captain Crane reminds you. Dr. Crushing gives a doubtful hum. We can? Asks the captain. Of course we can. Everything moves in this universe. Planets, galaxies, the ship. It would be a very poor time machine that can only send things to one perfectly fixed point. He says. So why haven't we been using this as a transporter? She demands. It's too dangerous, tampering with the space-time continuum. It's not something one does lightly, you know. He says. He looks at you. But since our visitor is already displaced in time, in this instance, it would be more dangerous not to use the time machine. You look at the captain, hopefully. She says, Hey, if you feel like trusting the fool who got you here in the first place, go for it. You weigh your options. This is the only way you're getting home. Do it. You say. A few hours later, Dr. Crushing emerges from his lab, holding the doomsday device in his hand. There's now a hole on the top of the ball. He describes the process. I'm going to point the hole at you and press the button. At that time, you will be instantaneously transported to Earth in your time. I should warn you, however, that when I looked up Earth in our planet guide, it was Class V. That means we've never visited it. That means we haven't mapped its surface. And that means you could arrive anywhere on the planet itself. Ready? As I'll ever be, you say. He presses the button. Skip to Chapter 65.
Chapter 64 You abandon your boring time travel mission and accept your new life as a space pirate. It's so rad. You have an amazing life full of adventures. You're respected and feared by all the right aliens. You lose an eye in a bet with a creature from somewhere in the Scorpius constellation, but your eye patch looks cool and you don't mind. You even wind up visiting Earth at one point, though by then you no longer think of it as home. You eventually die of old age, surrounded by loved ones on top of a pile of space gold. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter one. Chapter 65 You're in the ocean. You're in the middle of the ocean. Well, that's just great. You traveled into the future, across untold depths of space, and back only to drown in the ocean. Just when you think all is lost, you see your salvation, a group of dolphins swimming toward you. They'll probably guide you back to shore, like in that internet video you saw once. They don't. They surround you in a circle and take turns bludgeoning you. Toward the end of it, you see a shark swim toward you, and for the briefest of moments, you fantasize about an enemy of my enemy is my friend scenario, in which a shark saves you from the dolphins. But it's outnumbered. The dolphins bludgeon it too, and you both go down together. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 66 He explains how you can both use a time machine at the same time. He gestures to a metal box on his desk, and you realize that's the time machine. It's been sitting on his desk the whole time. It's a simple looking device, just a metal box, about the size of a loaf of bread, with the words Mark II written on it, and two buttons. One says Last Time Departed, and the other Instant Replay. If you hit the Last Time Departed button, skip to chapter 68. If you hit the instant replay button, skip to chapter 69. Chapter 67 Overchuck gives a quick explanation of how the time machine works. First, when you make the trip, the time machine doesn't come with you. This is a safety measure to ensure that if you die outside your home time, the machine doesn't get left unsupervised. Oberchuk has a remote control coded to his fingerprint that allows him and only him to access the machine even when he's separated from it, by millions of years even. If necessary, you can take the time machine with you by physically holding it. He admits that this is a design flaw that makes a safety feature basically useless. He's hoping to eliminate that problem with the Mark III, but he hasn't quite worked it out yet. Finally, he explains that in order for you both to use the time machine, you both have to grab hold of it. It's only then, when he gestures toward it, that you realize the time machine has been sitting on the desk next to you this entire time. It's a metal box about the size of a loaf of bread, with Mark II written on the side. You put your hands on the box, just as the men raiding the house enter the study. Oberchuk hastily presses some buttons on the remote. You both vanish with the sound of a large thunderclap. Skip to chapter 78. Chapter 68. A loud thunderclap marks your arrival. You're surrounded by massive plants. Everything is green and purple as far as you can see. They look a little like lilacs, 
but much bigger and thicker than any lilac you've ever seen. There is a certain savagery to the landscape. You don't think you're in a time where humans walk the earth. That's either much later or much earlier than this. If you choose to explore this new world, skip to... Oh. <laughs> it turns out this was not a great spot to stand around. Thinking about what you're going to do next, one of the thick, viney branches of a giant lilac seizes your arms and legs. You let out a scream, and the branch that had been reaching out toward your neck stops. A few of the plants around you exchange spores. What are they doing? Are they communicating? You're not sure and you never will be. The last thing you see is the branch resuming its push toward your ever so fragile neck. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 69 You hear a thunderclap as you arrive at your destination. You're still in the study, but you're alone now. Your phone buzzes in your pocket. It hits you. It's 20 minutes ago. That call is the same exact one that sent you here. If you answer the call, skip to chapter 70. If you don't answer the call, skip to chapter 71. Chapter 70 You take the phone out of your pocket. As your finger races toward the screen to complete its task, a string of thoughts occur to you all at once. The first, I already answered this call at my house. The second, if I answer it now, the phone at my house will stop ringing and past me won't be able to answer it. Then, if I don't answer the phone at the house, then I won't come here, find the time machine, and become present time me. And finally, pretty sure that's what a paradox is. Unfortunately, your finger reaches its destination before you can get to your fifth thought, which would have been, I probably shouldn't answer the phone. You do answer the phone, and the universe explodes. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter one. Chapter 71 You let the phone ring till it stops. Who knows what answering a phone from the present in the past could do to the future. You're safe for the moment, and you don't want to interfere with anything. There's something fishy going on. Who are those people raiding the house? Wilberchuk didn't seem to trust Ice. Have they been lying to you? There's only one person you could talk to to get answers. If you search around the house for Wilberchuk, skip to chapter 72. If you return to your house to find the man at the door, Skip to chapter 73. If you stick to your orders and destroy the time machine regardless of doubts, skip to chapter 74. Chapter 72. You search all over the house and find no one. You do find a lot of interesting charts and artifacts. It's clear that he's already gotten a lot of use out of the time machine. In one room, you find a living caged dodo. After the search, you return to the study and take a good look at the map on the wall. It charts all the important events of human history. 1939, World War II begins. 4,958, one world government established. 30,000 approximately, last living human on Earth dies. As you ponder our place in the universe, you hear that thunderclap again. The inventor comes charging into the room, pen in hand, to add to the map. 
He writes, 4,928,402. Saringa vulgaris emerges as dominant species. It's not until he finished that he notices you. He studies you for a moment. Who are you? He spits. No uniform by yourself. You're not with ice. Look upon your face shows you know what this map represents. So you're not some neighborhood rap scallion that's just wandered into my house. I've got it. You're from the future. Yes. You say. You're my first historian. He cheers. No. You say. Oh, I knew they would come to see this monumentous moment. He squeals undeterred. You hear the front door creak open in the distance. You know that it's your past self coming into the house. You have a bad feeling as to what will happen if you meet yourself. If you warn your neighbor, skip to chapter 75. If you don't, skip to chapter 76. Chapter 73 You leave the old house and go back to your place across the street. The man that knocked on your door is still there. He wears a dark green suit and is sort of forgettably good-looking. I want some answers, you demand. He looks at you, then at the door, then back at you. Are you in there? He asks. Yes, talking on the phone to a man who wanted me to destroy the time machine, I used it to come back to here instead, you say. So wait a minute, he says. You're telling me that you were in there, then you left. Use the time machine to travel to now to talk to me. Yes. So you're in there on the phone right now. Yeah. But you're also talking to me here. Yeah, what are you doing? Stalling, goodbye. He says and vanishes in a puff. As soon as he's gone, your door opens and you come face to face with yourself. The timeline leading up to this moment becomes confused and impossible, causing a paradox. Which destroys the universe. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 74 You pick up the time machine and smash it on the ground. It breaks almost too easily. And then you... What? Uh, hold on, you... How did you get here? You remember crossing the street, coming into the house, and using the time? No, no, the time machine had already been destroyed when you got here. It's hard for your brain to process what you've done today. It's even harder for the universe, which explodes due to the paradox-related pressure on the space-time continuum. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter 75 I'm about to walk through that door, you say quickly and calmly. Not me, but the past version of me. I'm going to hide. You need to say exactly the same thing that you said to me. Arborchuk looks shocked, but doesn't have time to respond. You duck behind a nearby sofa and watch the events unfold again. The house gets raided. Arborchuk suggests fleeing. You press the instant replay button. When you're gone, you get out from behind the couch. You tried to steal my time machine, he accuses. No. You lie. I thought we were leaving together. I don't know how this works. I, I panicked. Okay, but listen this time, he says. 
This is how we leave. Together. If you travel through time with Oberjeff, skip to chapter 67. If you ditch him again, skip to chapter 77. Chapter 76 You keep your mouth shut, unafraid of the numerous warnings you are given about paradoxes. The other you walks into the room, and the resulting paradox destroys the universe. The last thing you see is Overchuck looking at you, both of yous, with total disdain and disappointment. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter 77 You decide to once again abandon the only person who actually knows what he's doing. You press the remaining button on the time machine. Skip to Chapter 68. Chapter 78 You arrive at the destination Overchuck selected. You look around and see everything that sci-fi movies promise to you about the future. Flying cars, human-sized pneumatic tubes. You even see a kid skate by on a hoverboard. You and Oberchuck each hold the time machine with one hand. He turns to you sharply. Now that we're safe, who are you? He demands. Um, I'm a visitor from the future? You mumble. Stranded in this strange far-off time, you think it's probably best not to make the only person who can get you home angry. Try again, he says. You stare back at him dumbly. He starts again. Before my home was raided, you said... Not exactly, as in I'm not exactly a visitor from the future. So who are you exactly? You crack. I live across the street from you. This morning Ice called me and told me to destroy your time machine. Well, why didn't you? Yes. The conversation is halted by a pair of street tufts. One has two foot orange spikes jutting out of his head. You think it might be hair, but you're not sure. The other has eyes on stocks, like a snail. Both wear leather armor with nonsense words graffitied on it. Give us everything you have on you, or we'll use this. Warns the one with the spikes. He wields an amorphous purple blob, threateningly. Uh, what will that thing do to us? You whisper. I don't know, I'm not familiar with this time period. Overchuck replies. Then why did you bring us here? I didn't exactly have time to plan this trip, you know. If your buddies had eyes hadn't- Shut up and give us the bucks, old man! Screeches the young man with eye stocks. They're getting impatient. Something has to happen. If you try to do as they say, skip to chapter 79. If you attempt to disarm the thugs, skip to chapter 80. Chapter 79 uh, The box says Overchuck. Would you rather have my wallet? The old man calmly and carefully reaches into his coat pocket and presses a button on the remote. With a sound of a thunderclap, you disappear away from the trouble. You reappear in a forest. Where are we now? You ask. I don't know. I hit a random button. Overchuck replies. He fiddles with the remote. You look around, there's a strange uniform quality to the forest. All the trees look the same. Until an arrow whizzes by, just inches above your head, depositing itself in the nearest trunk. Uh, hey, Dr. Oberchuck. You squeak. You think we can get out of here? 
It's Mr. Opachuk, actually. He corrects. I've never finished school. Short-sighted ignoramuses wouldn't know real science if it... Another arrow passes right in front of his eyes. He looks out into the distance. Hello! He shouts. We mean you no harm. Just get us out of here. You plead. Something's interfering with the remote. I think we're in a hollow room. He says. Suddenly, a giant centaur-like beast emerges from the wood, trampling trees in its path. It's got the legs and body of an elephant, a proportionally large gorilla torso, and a ferocious tiger head. It rears up on its hind legs, ready to stamp, then falls harmlessly to the side with an arrow in its head. It flickers a few times, then disappears. Big yellow numbers and letters appear in midair. They read, 1000 XP. A pointy-eared man in a green tunic runs through the numbers, and they burst with a satisfying pop. Wielding his bow and arrow, he breathes deep and speaks from his diaphragm, like he's performing. Worry not, wary gentlemen, I'm here to rescue... Wait, these are not period-appropriate clothes. Computer and simulation! Everything around you fades away. The forest is replaced with a large, totally featureless room. All that remains is you, Mr. Oberchuk, the stranger, and his bow and arrow. He looks at you with shock. Uh, computer, activate alarms. We have intruders in the hollow room. He shouts. Who are you? I'm a level 80 ranger, so you better hope I like your answer. He punctuates this statement by drawing an arrow and aiming it directly at your face. Now free of interference from the hollow generator, Oberchuk activates the time machine. At the same time, you put your hands up, slamming the device into his shoulder just as you both disappear. There's no thunderclap this time, or rather there was, but you couldn't hear it. The time machine has deposited you and its inventor into the cold void of space. Mr. Oberchuk instinctively drops the remote to grab his shoulder. It floats away from you. If science fiction movies are to be believed, you have about 30 seconds to get that remote and get to somewhere safe. With nothing else on which to gain traction, the only way to move toward the remote is for one of you to push the other. If you push Mr. Oberchuk toward the remote, skip to chapter 81. If you use Mr. Oberchuk to launch yourself toward the remote, skip to chapter 82. Chapter 80 You try to kick the purple blob out of the thug's hand. You're not even close. He gives the blob a squeeze. It grows to about 8 feet tall and absorbs you into its gelatinous center. Over the next 10 years, it keeps you alive by feeding you nutrients through your pores, all the while slowly digesting you. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter 81 you move yourself into position to push Mr. Oberchuk toward the remote. But he's one step ahead of you. He takes your free hand and places it on the time machine. He motions for you to hold on to it, then gives you a hard shove, propelling himself toward the remote. He reaches it, presses a few buttons, and then he's gone. You're sure he's coming back for you? He's gotta be, right? You look at the nothingness around you. 
The closest object, as far as you can tell, is a star that looks like a slightly bigger little speck than all the other little specks. He wouldn't just leave you here. You're certain. Skip to chapter 83. Chapter 82 You quickly grab Mr. Opercheck by the lapels. Bring your feet up onto his chest, then kick out your legs as hard as you can, launching yourself toward the remote. You drop the actual time machine in the process. The force of your kick is enough to make Overchuck drop the time machine too. You float toward the remote. Mr. Overchuck floats in the opposite direction, and the time machine floats away from the both of you. Mr. Overchuck is furious. You catch up with the remote and start pressing buttons. Nothing happens. You look back to the old man. You can't tell if his face is purple with rage or asphyxiation. He's trying to scream, but the vacuum of space swallows his words. By reading his lips, you sort of make out what he's saying. The remote is coded to my fingerprints, you fool! He's the only one that can use the remote. You might try to toss it back to him, but it would never catch up and you're starting to lose brain function alarmingly fast. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 83 You don't know how much longer you can hold the air in your lungs. Optimistically, you'd say that you have maybe 10 seconds, if you don't freeze first. Your vision clouds, one by one. The little specks disappear until the blackness consumes you. You hear the life-saving sound of a thunderclap. It was buried under an uproarious audience applause, but it was there. Your head is pounding. All you can see is a white blur. Where am I? You ask the blur. It answers with Mr. Oberchuk's voice. Uh, we're at a taping for a Japanese game show. It's safe, and it's too public for any of your cronies to come and pick us up. Shapes take focus in front of your eyes. You see the stage now. Two people are both trying to call a dog over to them, while a man in the suit narrates the action. He maintains an insane level of excitement. Tell me exactly what happened to you this morning, Mr. Oberchuck commands. I need to know why ICE is raiding my house. It's against regulations. I've broken no time laws. They have no right to take my property. Okay. I was sitting in my living room, then my phone buzzed. And there was someone at the door. I answered the phone. It was Ice. They told me not to answer the door, and they told me that I needed to go across the street and destroy your time machine, or the universe would explode. You recount. Who was at the door? He asks. I didn't answer the door, but the man on the phone said it was someone from FBY, you answer. Mr. Oberchuck gasps. We have to get back to my house and grab the time machine. Wait, why? What's going on? You stumble. Don't you see? He yells. That wasn't ice riding my house. It was the FBY. They want to steal the time machine. How do you know that? The man at your door was a hologram. The FBY doesn't have a working time machine. They'd have to piggyback on the phone call, which means they have eyes on our houses. 
Which means they know I'm not there right now. But the time machine's with us. We're safe. The Mark II is with us. He points to the lettering on the box. The Mark I is sitting in my basement, and the Mark III is sitting in my bedroom. Oh, the Mark I has limited capabilities, and the Mark III is just a prototype, but still the consequences could be catastrophic. We have to go! By ourselves? It sounded like they had a whole team with them. You reason? Hmm, you've got a point. We'll have to put together a team of our own. I need to call in some favors. Okay, before we go, I have to ask you two questions. Why did you come to my house? And why didn't you destroy the time machine like you were told? Same answer. I wanted to travel through time. Good enough, declares Overchuck, grabbing your arm. He presses a few buttons on the remote. And you're off. Skip to chapter 84. Chapter 84 You appear back in Mr. Oberchuk's study. You panic and brace yourself for a fight with the FBY. It doesn't come. I don't understand. Where are the people that were raiding the house? You ask. I took us back one week from today. Now, if I remember correctly, we should have a few minutes before my past self returns from his, uh, uh rather my trip to ancient Saskatchewan. He explains. Great, so we just take the time machines and leave. That way we're not here when the bad guys get here, right? You say. Paradox, he warns sternly. Yeah, but... You counter. Paradox, he insists. They were probably coming to this room looking for the Mark III. They were probably coming into this room looking for the Mark II. Luckily that's with us. But they still might find the others. I'm going to make some alterations so that if it falls into their hands, the results will only be horrific, not catastrophic. How reassuring. You mutter. Overchuck runs for the door. On his way out, he says, Look in that filing cabinet over there. He points to the back corner of the room. You'll find files on people we can depend on. People that are hip to how time travel should work. What does that mean? You wonder. They'll help us fight. Just get the files. You approach the file cabinet. There are three drawers. The bottom is open already and empty. If you pick files from the top drawer, skip to chapter 85. If you pick files from the middle drawer, skip to chapter 86. Chapter 85. You open the top drawer. It's empty, but for a single manila folder. Inside you find three pieces of paper, each with a picture and a list of relevant information. The picture shows a man with big sideburns and a straw hat, a woman with short black hair slicked back and a gold medal around her neck, and a robot. You want to examine a page more closely. If you examine the page with a man with sideburns, skip to chapter 87. If you examine the page with the woman with the gold medal, skip to chapter 88. If you examine the page with the robot, skip to chapter 89. Chapter 86 You open the middle drawer. It's empty, but for a single manila folder. Inside you find three pieces of paper, 
each with a picture and a list of relevant information. The pictures show a very large woman with her hair in buns, a man with a mustache and a worn denim shirt, and a rat. You want to examine a page more closely. If you examine the page with the woman with buns in her hair, skip to chapter 90. If you examine the page with the man with the mustache, skip to chapter 91. If you examine the page with the rat, skip to chapter 92. Chapter 87 You flip to the page with the man with sideburns. His name's Leo Bud Torini. Born 1946. Private detective. The word cool is written as a standalone sentence in italics. You skim down to a section labeled Known Weaknesses. The first entry is General Cowardice. The old man bursts into the room before you could read the next item. We have to go now, he shouts. Did you pick a team? Don't you think you should look this over too? You suggest. Every team in that cabinet was hand-selected by me to be able to handle any task. I'm sure whatever you picked will be fine. It's time to take down the FBY. You have time to switch this folder for one in the middle drawer, but not to look it over. If you stay with the team you already chose, skip to chapter 93. If you swap teams, skip to chapter 94. Chapter 88 You flip to the page with the woman with the medal. Her name's Mel Bratton. Born in 2089, won the gold medal for Australia in pole vaulting at the 2108 Summer Olympics. You skim down to a section labeled Known Weaknesses. The first entry is Brazil Nut Allergy. The old man bursts into the room before you can read the next item. We have to go now, he shouts. Did you pick a team? Don't you think you should look this over too? You suggest. Every team in that cabinet was hand-selected by me to be able to handle any task. I'm sure whatever you picked will be fine. It's time to take down the FBY. You have time to switch this folder for one in the middle drawer, but not to look it over. If you stay with the team you originally chose, skip to chapter 93. If you swap teams, skip to chapter 94. Chapter 89 You flip to the page with the robot. It's named ZX-5265, programmed for combat and diplomacy, in that order. Built in 3157, became self-aware in 3159. Its name is pronounced ZX, and it gets offended if you call it ZX. You skim down to a section labeled Known Glitches. The first entry is Irrational Fear of Insects and Similar Animals, the old man bursts into the room before you could read the next item. We have to go now, he shouts. Did you pick a team? Don't you think you should look this over too, you suggest? Every team in that cabinet was hand-selected by me to be able to handle any task. I'm sure whatever you picked will be fine. It's time to take down the FBY. You have time to switch this folder for one in the middle drawer, but not to look it over. If you stay with the team you already chose, skip to chapter 93. If you swap teams, skip to chapter 94. Chapter 90 You flip to the page with the woman with buns in her hair. Her name is Lizzie Dowd. Born in 1547, died in 1587, she was known in local villages as the woman with the strength of three oxen. You skim down to a section labeled Known Weaknesses. The first entry is Overconfidence. 
The old man bursts into the room before you can read the next item. We have to go now, he shouts. Did you pick a team? Don't you think you should look this over too? You suggest. Every team in that cabinet was hand-selected by me to be able to handle any task. I'm sure whatever you picked will be fine. It's time to take down the FBY. You have time to switch this folder for one from the top drawer, but not to look it over. If you stay with the team you originally chose, skip to chapter 94. If you swap teams, skip to chapter 93. Chapter 91 You flip to the page with the man with the mustache. His name is Klaus Spreckels, born in 1942. Film director known for his insane dedication and ability to compel and depress the viewer. You skim down to a section labeled Known Weaknesses. The first entry is Hyper-Awareness of Own Mortality. The old man bursts into the room before you can read the next item. We have to go now, he shouts. Did you pick a team? Don't you think you should look this over too? You suggest. Every team in that cabinet was hand-selected by me to be able to handle any task. I'm sure whatever you picked will be fine. It's time to take down the FBY. You have time to switch this folder for one from the top drawer, but not to look it over. If you stay with the team you originally chose, skip to chapter 94. If you swap teams, skip to chapter 93. Chapter 92 You flip to the page with the rat. Its name is Agamemnon, born in 2234. Given superintelligence, May 8th, 2235. Lost superintelligence, May 15th, 2235. You skim down to a section labeled Known Weaknesses. The first entry is very small. The old man bursts into the room before you can read the next item. We have to go now, he shouts. Did you pick a team? Don't you think you should look this over too? You suggest. Every team in that cabinet was hand-selected by me to be able to handle any task. I'm sure whatever you picked will be fine. It's time to take down the FBY. You have time to switch this folder for one from the top drawer, but not to look it over. If you stay with the team you originally chose, skip to chapter 94. If you swap teams, skip to chapter 93. Chapter 93 You travel through time, recruiting the team. First comes the medalist. She's training for her second time at the Olympics in a futuristic facility. She has the gravity in the room set so high that you almost pass out before she can agree to join you. Next you recruit the man with the sideburns. He keeps a small, dirty office in the back of a reptile sanctuary. He's happy to take the case. Finally, the robot. It's in sleep mode in the closet somewhere. All you have to do is say its name and it comes to life, ready to fight. Before you make the final jump to the house, you look over the team. The Olympic gold medalist certainly looks like she can handle herself in a fight. The man with cyberns has definitely peeked into his share of dark corners, and the robot is a small tank with legs. The FBY won't know what hit him. You gather around the time machine and clasp hands. Oberchuk presses the button that will plunge you into the battle. It does not go well. You arrive at the house just as you left earlier. The FBY have begun their raid. The Olympian is the first to dash in, eager to show off the skills that won her the gold medal. She pulls a retractable pole vault from her pocket and extends it into the carpet. She displays tremendous grace and athleticism as she flings herself directly into the ceiling, knocking herself unconscious and breaking her leg on the floor. 
the robot charges in after. You, Mr. Oberchuk, and Cyburns follow in its wake. It manages to take on a few FBI agents on its way to the study, where the agents believe the time machine to be. It stops in its tracks when it sees a discarded meat burger bag covered in ants. Ants, ants, ants. It screeches in a tin voice, creeping in through openings in my chassis, crawling around inside of me, dirtying my motherboard. Oh, the thought of it all. It short circuits in fear. Sideburn looks at his fallen compatriots and drops to the floor in a ball. It's down to you and Overchuck. You go back to back, ready to fight them off. One of them gets a buzz on the walkie-talkie. Time machine mark one found. Preparing to engage, says the voice. No! Overchuck shouts. The FBI is tinkering with the basement time machine destroys the universe. All matter contracts and converges on a single point. Everything that ever was is over. And then, expansion, atoms form, then molecules, eventually stars and planets, galaxies. Billions of years later, someone identical to you lives in a house across the street from someone identical to Mr. Oberchuk. The phone rings, and someone knocks at the door. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 94 You travel through time recruiting the team. The woman with buns in her hair is first. She's lifting hay bales into a cart in old Ireland. She's ready for an adventure. Now you go after the mustached man. He's shooting a movie in the Gobi Desert, screaming at his lead actor about the evils of nature. He needs some time away to cool his head. Finally, the rat. He's giving a physics lecture at Harvard. He'll do anything to prolong going back to the lab. Before you make the final jump back to the house, you look over the team. The large woman looks like she could punch a bear into two pieces. Mustache man has eyes that look deep inside your soul. And the rat speaks with such confidence that you believe he can do anything. The FBI won't know what hit him. You gather around the time machine and clasp hands. Overchuck presses the button that will plunge you into the battle. You arrive outside the house. The large woman immediately charges in shouting, For the old country! The rat scurries off. Wait, wait, we need a plan of attack! Overchuck tries to tell them. The old man, Mustache, and you approach the house carefully. In the entryway, you see a number of unconscious FBI agents. Only one still stands, cowering in the corner. I will handle this, says Mustache. He approaches the remaining agent and says in a calm, quiet voice, Have you considered that any task when viewed from an appropriate distance is pointless? Consider man's evolution from Homo erectus to now. Mustache's voice fades from your ear as you move to the other room. In the study, the strong woman stands over a pile of defeated agents, breathing heavily. Mustache man joins you. I have convinced the other man to go home. Then I explain to him the futility of his task, and that we are all just insects, waiting to be crushed under the hill of an uncaring universe. He became demoralized and gave up his course. This was a lot easier than you anticipated. One of the down agents walkie-talkie buzzes. Mark 1 is found. I repeat, the Mark 1 is found. Preparing to engage travel. Comes the voice on the other end. They're in the basement! Overchuck gasps. You tense up. 
This is it. You failed. The universe is going to blow up. And then, it doesn't. The walkie-talkie buzzes again. This time you hear the voice of a rat on the other end. This is Agent Agamemnon. I have slain the last of the FBY. You speak into the walkie-talkie. You killed them? Oh no. He assures you. I coated my teeth in a powerful anesthetic that I created myself and then bit him on the ankle. You'll be out for a few hours, but fine after that. Sorry, I guess I kind of got caught up in the moment. Oh, and Mr. Oberchuk, you've got rats in your walls. Don't worry, though. They're good people. They've got eyes upstairs, and they told me the FEY never made it to the Mark III. More agents barge into the house, wearing stone armor and pointing small metal tubes at you. Everybody freeze! This is interchronological enforcement, barks the agent leading the charge. Gerard Reginald Oberchuk, you are under arrest for failing to prevent a Class II time machine from falling into the wrong... The wrong... He trills off when he sees the FBI agents knocked out on the floor. I'm sorry. Can you repeat that? Says Oberchuk smugly. I couldn't hear you over the sound of me doing your job. The law requires me to keep my time machine reasonably safe. It does not require me to hunt down time criminals like some kind of vigilante. But I took down the FBI anyway. You're welcome. The ICE agent sighs heavily. He's heard this speech so many times before. Now for once, would you do your job and get this trash out of here? The agent stares him down for a second. Okay, old man. We can't arrest you this time. But one day, you're going to miss something and we're going to take you down. I'm certain that day will never come, smiles Oberchuk. I've seen the future. Skip to chapter 95. Chapter 95 You walk across the street back to your house. Oberchuk takes the rest of the team home. He's back before you shut the door. Hey, thanks for the help. You know, I'm glad you're my neighbor. Who knows what would have happened if today had turned out differently, he says. I'm just glad I didn't blow up the universe, you say. I'm gonna go get some sleep. Oh, yes, of course, he says. I'll see you around. Yeah, see ya, you say. You shut the door and fall back on it, closing your eyes. What a crazy day. Then, your phone buzzes. There's a knock at the door. You answer the door. It's Oberchuk with a beard. Don't answer that phone, he says. It's an evil version of me from an alternate universe. Something's gone horribly wrong with the past. Look! He holds up a mirror. You see a stranger looking back at you. Oberchuk searches his pockets. We need to hurry. We have to fix this before the timeline catches up with you and you forget who you're supposed to be. Here, take this. He hands you a small purple and white pill that says Mark 8 on it. You swallow it without a second thought. When do we go first? This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 96 You push open the door, and wander into the house. You hear shuffling in a far-off room. You move toward the noise. You pass through a hallway lined with portraits of five generations of what you assume are your neighbor's ancestors. Leopold Oberchuk, Bartholomew Oberchuk, Nathaniel Oberchuk, and so on. You arrive at the source of the noise, 
and peek your head into the room. It's the study. It's very unkempt. It appears to be the only room that's actually lived in. Inside, your neighbor, Overcheck, is walking excitedly in circles. He looks like he's in his late 50s, but still good in the fight, like he used to be a wrestler or something. He's bald with long hair on the sides. What a curious turn of events, he ponders aloud. I must add lilacs to the do not disturb list. The anachronistic death of even one plant could. He notices you and stops. He grabs you by the shoulders and pulls you into the room. You now see a large map taking up one whole wall describing the events of human history, past, present, and future. Who are you? He spits. Oh, uniform, by yourself. You're not with ice. Look of recognition on your face shows you know what this map means. So you're not some neighborhood rapscallion that's just wandered into my house. He pauses to think. I've got it. You're from the future. You're my first historian. Not exactly, you correct. He's not paying attention. His face swims with pride at the thought of a future historian paying him a visit. The face turns to a frown when he hears his front door being kicked in. Someone is raiding the house. Ice! He gasps. They finally decided to break their own rules and destroy my creation. Quick, we have to get out of here. How? You ask. With the time machine. If you flee with Overchuck, skip to chapter 97. If you flee without him, skip to chapter 98. Chapter 97 Overchuck gives a quick explanation of how the time machine works. First, when you make the trip, the time machine doesn't come with you. This is a safety measure to ensure that if you die outside your home time, the machine doesn't get left unsupervised. Oberchuk has a remote control coded to his fingerprint that allows him and only him to access the machine even when he's separated from it, by millions of years even. If necessary, you can take the time machine with you by physically holding it. He admits that this is a design flaw that makes a safety feature basically useless. He's hoping to eliminate that problem with the Mark III, but he hasn't quite worked it out yet. Finally, he explains that in order for you both to use the time machine, you both have to grab hold of it. It's only then, when he gestures toward it, that you realize the time machine has been sitting on the desk next to you this entire time. It's a metal box about the size of a loaf of bread, with Mark II written on the side. You put your hands on the box, just as the men raiding the house enter the study. Oberchuk hastily presses some buttons on the remote. You both vanish with the sound of a large thunderclap. Skip to chapter 110. Chapter 98. He explains how you both can use the time machine at the same time. He gestures to a metal box on his desk, and you realize that's the time machine. It's been sitting on his desk the whole time. It's a simple looking device, just a metal box about the size of a loaf of bread with the words Mark II written on it, and two buttons. One button says last time departed, and the other says instant replay. If you hit the last time departed button, skip to chapter 68. If you hit the instant replay button, skip to chapter 99. Chapter 99. You hear what sounds like a thunderclap as you arrive at your destination. 
You look around and see that you're in the exact same room, but no one else is here. Not the inventor or the people raiding the house. Your phone buzzes in your pocket. It hits you. It's 20 minutes ago. That call is the exact same one you ignored earlier. You answer the phone with a tentative hello. The voice on the other end responds quickly and sternly. You answered the door, didn't you? No. You lie. It's not very convincing. You answered the door, and now you've put the universe in grave peril. He scolds. How do you... You start. Because I do. I know things. That is my job. And because it's my job to know things. I know that the man at the door has had you monkeying around with technology you don't understand. And now, unless you do exactly as I say, you will create a paradox that will destroy the universe. He explains. The man at the door has said you'd say that, you retort. The man at the door was right. I am saying this, he answers. Now, I need you to stay exactly where you are until interchronological enforcement arrive, he commands. They should be there in time to stop you from meeting yourself. Then, then you'll be relocated to a time far away from now where you have no chance of interfering with space-time continuum again. Do you understand? I understand that I'm supposed to stay here. I don't exactly know what you're going to do to me. You respond, Good enough, he says and hangs up. If you obey the orders and wait for interchronological enforcement, skip to chapter 100. If you proceed upstairs, skip to chapter 101. Chapter 100. You're in over your head. It's clear to you that you are not qualified to handle tech that could destroy the universe. For all its problems, you really like the place. So you calmly take a seat and wait for ice to arrive. A few minutes later, they burst through the door. There's five of them, all wearing futuristic body armor unlike anything you've ever seen. It's made of thick black stone, but it moves and bends effortlessly with their bodies. The only opening is for their eyes. Each of them holds an unassuming metal tube that you believe to be a weapon, based on the way they're pointing them at you. You put your hands up. I... You start. Before you finish the word, you've been transported. You're in a cell. You don't know how you got here, but you have to believe it had something to do with those metal tubes. The cell is strange. There's a bed, a toilet, a bookshelf, and somewhat inexplicably... A Backstreet Boys poster from the Black and Blue Tour. The bookshelf is full of world histories with dates, starting at 10,000 BC and ending at 3,576 AD. Apparently the present day. Everything that happens for the next thousand and a half years is in those books. The floor is carpet, which is a gross choice you think to yourself as there is a toilet in the room, and the walls are not walls, they are boundaries. Beyond these boundaries lie nothing but infinite white space. When you try to walk beyond the carpet, your legs keep moving as if you're walking, but you make no progress. It's like trying to run in a dream. You wonder what the Backstreet Boys poster is attached to. If you take this opportunity to read up on the future, skip to chapter 102. 
If you examine the Backstreet Boys posters, skip to chapter 103. Chapter 101 You wander around the palatial home until you find the stairs. The steps are steep and winding. On the second floor, you see a hallway with a number of doors, only one of them open. The master bedroom. Inside, you find a grotesquely beautiful four-poster bed. It's made from solid oak. Faces of important figures throughout history have been expertly carved into the columns. A bare mattress sits in the middle of it all. Next to the bed, you see a plain desk with a record player and a record propped up next to that. You pick up the album, French Windows by Larry Braids. You suddenly notice what the record was propped up against, a nondescript metal box with the words Mark III written on it and a touchscreen. The Time Machine. Underneath it, you see a lot of notes indicating that this is a prototype and not fully functional yet. You fear that it may not be safe to use. Maybe it's best to leave this to the professionals. If you proceed to the rendezvous anyway, skip to chapter 104. If you decide not to risk it and surrender yourself to ice, skip to chapter 100. Chapter 102. You select one of the future histories at random. The outline of history. 2810 to 2,819. You flip to a page, again at random, and notice the chapter heading, First Contact. Jackpot, you think to yourself. You flip back to the beginning of the chapter and read the following page. In the preceding chapters and volumes, we have discussed the increasingly sophisticated development of humanity. We have seen wars fought, empires rise and fall, in the development of technology that, to paraphrase Clark, would be indistinguishable from magic to those unlucky denizens of the past. So it is important to understand, when I say now, that what you're about to read describes the single most significant event in human history. The pooling of intelligence between ourselves and our interstellar neighbors has enabled us to make advances in the last 700 years that shouldn't have been possible in 7,000. Simply put, this is a big one. On January 18th, 2813, a UFO landed in Roanoke, Indiana at 6.47 a.m. Eastern Time. At 6.49, an exit ramp extended from the craft, and two hooded figures descended halfway down its path and stopped. They wouldn't move again for another ten years. No one could see what they looked like under the hoods. But the fabric wasn't especially heavy or hard. They just felt like normal linen, but couldn't be moved or destroyed in any way. Theories about the strange beings spread like wildfire. Were they truly visitors from another planet? Another dimension? Perhaps they were twisted versions of ourselves from some far future. After all, in 2813, time travel was a nascent technology. Who can forget about that incident on July 4th? 2776, when the United States of America briefly reverted to British control. The truth about these outsiders wouldn't be revealed until 2823. That revelation will be covered in our next volume, but even their arrival had a profound impact on species of Earth. A conference of world leaders was held that night. It had to be... 
At this point, you notice you are being watched. You stop reading. A man in flowing robes with a pointed gray goatee stands outside the barrier. He smiles warmly and says, Welcome. I do apologize for detaining you, but you are technically a criminal. I know this may sound shocking to you. I'm certain you don't think of yourself that way, but such is the nature of chronocrime. If you'll follow me, we could begin your trial. Skip to chapter 105. Chapter 103 You take a step toward the Backstreet Boys poster. It moves back. You take another step. It moves back again. You take a few steps to the left. This time, it doesn't move with you, but remains impossibly at the same angle. As you puzzle over the poster, a man in flowing robes with a pointed gray goatee appears from beyond the barrier. He smiles warmly and says, Welcome. I do apologize for detaining you. But you are... What's with the poster? You interrupted. Ah. He smiles again. A lot of our guests have a tendency to become disoriented when they arrive here. We find that placing some totem, uh, some link to their native time, helps to ease the transition. Uh, you might want to update your references, you suggest. He turns his head slightly and mumbles something. When he returns his attention to you, he continues. Well, as I was saying, I do apologize for detaining you, but you are technically a criminal. I know this may sound shocking to you. I'm certain you don't think yourself that way. But such is the nature of chronic crime. If you'll follow me, we can begin your trial. Skip to chapter 105. Chapter 104 You pick up the time machine and enter the date you were told. There's no thunderclap this time. This one's silent, but your ears pop like you're in an airplane as you arrive. You're in the middle of an abandoned warehouse over 1,000 years in the future. It looks just like an abandoned warehouse in the present day. Moonlight and street lamps shine in through a large hole in the roof. A man approaches from outside. He wears an elegant, long-sleeved men's dress and sunglasses, even though it's midnight. You got the thing? He yells. Who's asking? You shout back. Andrew Fitz, FBY, he says. He's about a quarter way across the warehouse now. You hear more footsteps coming from behind you. You got the thing? Yells a woman with long braided hair and a Native American-style poncho. Who are you? You and Andrew ask simultaneously. Evelyn Whirlwind, FBY. She answers. I say, do you have the voice? Calls a third voice in a comically huffy English accent. Ah, now who's this? Complains Fitz. You see the third man approaching now. A gentleman in full military regalia. <laughs> Lord Reginald Barry of the Royal Order of the FBY. He proclaims. What's going on? You demand. You stare at them. Evelyn's the first to crack. I'm not with the FBY, she admits. I'm with the Coalition of Surviving Native Americans. We have a source in the FBY. We were hoping you'd give the time machine to us instead. Oh, blind me, yes, that is precisely the same situation in which I find myself, confesses Lord Reginald. Except that I represent the glorious British Empire and Her Majesty Queen Victoria II. 
I'm with the FBY, says Fitz, and I'm suddenly realizing that we need better security. Oh, why do you all need the time machine? You ask the group. Hey, we had a deal! Squeals Fitz. You hold up a hand to silence him. All we want is a fighting chance, explains Evelyn. Plague wiped out most of my people before the Europeans ever showed up to slaughter them. I want to use the time machine to cure that illness and let my ancestors fight the invaders on equal ground. And I want to prevent the fall of the British Empire, Lord Reginald proffers. All the problems in the last two millennia could have been prevented if those mountebacks in the colonies had remained leal servants of the crown. You know what's right, Fitz says simply. If you honor your original deal and give the time machine to the FBY, skip to chapter 106. If you are suddenly having trouble trusting anyone with a time machine, skip to chapter 107. Chapter 105 The next few hours pass very quickly. Your jailer takes you directly to your trial. You have two lawyers, one from this time to represent you in court, and another from your own time to act as a liaison and make sure everything makes sense to you. She tells you that a certain amount of lawyers from all points in history are secretly chosen for this task. The trial moves smoothly without controversy. Your lawyer argues that you were manipulated by the man at the door. The jury decides you're guilty, but the judge gives a reduced sentence in light of the circumstances. You'll serve no time and pay no fines, but you are banned for life from traveling through time again. You were released to join the community as a legal citizen of 3,576. Life is hard at first, but you soon find your place. The future is not as different as you had expected. The technology is amazing. The music is terrible to your ear, and everyone thinks you're a little bit dumb due to the vast advances in education since you were last in school. Ironically, you make your living teaching 21st century history at a local institute. That's what most TDCs, time displaced citizens, do. You adjust, and soon your daily life seems just as mundane as it always did. Every once in a while, you run into an off-duty ICE officer, and idly fantasize about stealing their time machine, going back to see the people you left behind, if only for one last moment. Then you remember that the only reason the universe still stands is thanks to ice, and the fantasy fades. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 106 You give the time machine to Fitz. The FBY are the only ones whose goal is for the good of everybody. He smiles wide and immediately enters a date. He's about to activate the device and he hasn't taken you home. You get a bad feeling that if you let him leave, you'll never see the 21st century again. Acting fast, you grab his arm and take the journey with him. Your ears pop again as you arrive across the street from the warehouse you just left. Seemingly on the same night, he jerks his arm out of your grasp. Why are we back here? You ask. He stares at you for a second, trying to think of an excuse. Without warning or explanation, he breaks into a full sprint toward the warehouse. You don't know what his plan is, but it's clear he's up to something. You could chase him, but he got a head start. You see a trash can and wonder if there's anything to throw inside. If you give chase, skip to chapter 108. 
If you reach your hand into the garbage and hope for the best, skip to chapter 109. Chapter 107. You have second thoughts about trusting strangers with something as dangerous as a time machine. There are so many conflicting uses for it. How can any one person be trusted or craft to the definitive version of history? They can't, you decide as you throw the device on the ground as hard as you can. It breaks into many pieces. You fool! Oh, Fiendish no. coward! Shout Fitz, Evelyn, and Reginald, respectively. They continue to scream at you for a while, but in the end, they move on to the various plan Bs. You've destroyed the time machine, and the only people who might be able to find another one despise you. You wander out of the warehouse and into the strange world of the future with no friends. No money and no way home. You take comfort, at least, in the knowledge that the universe was not destroyed on your watch. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 108 you run after him, but it's no use. His head start gives him too much of a lead, and his dress is surprisingly easy to move in. You make it to the warehouse a second after him and see yourself, Evelyn Whirlwind, Lord Reginald Barry, and two Andrew Fitzes inside. Hey, Andy! Feels the one you were chasing? We did it! You dive tackle him, but he's still too fast. You brace yourself to hit the hard warehouse floor, but the hit never comes. The consistency of history crumbles under the paradox Fitz has created, and the universe blows up. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 109 You reach blindly into the garbage and pull out a mostly full bottle of soda. You pause for a second to marvel at the futuristic material the bottle is made of, or rather what it isn't made of. It feels like you're touching the soda directly. But somehow, it's not wet even as you see it slushing around like it was in plastic. Your brain has a bit of a problem processing the sensory information. But never mind, you think, as you reel back your arm and give the drink a righteous throw. You don't quite hit your target, but the beverage rolls under Fitz's foot, tripping him. He falls flat on the ground. You run to your fallen foe and grab him by the draped neckline of his dress. What are you doing? You shout. Um, I didn't know how to use the time machine and got confused. He hopes you'll believe. Try again, you say. Okay, don't get mad. I was trying to blow up the universe. Why? It's not a good place. It's not a healthy place. People get hurt. People die. Disease, murder, genocide. It's all too much. You were going to use the time machine to prevent all that. Prevent every murder ever. Be realistic. So, you're going to kill everybody instead. No, no, not kill everybody. You see, when you blow up the universe, nobody actually dies. They're simply never born. Everything is merely undone. And a new, hopefully better universe rises in its place. If we destroy enough universes, eventually a perfect one will arise. That's insane. You can't give up something just because it's not perfect. And you absolutely cannot make the choice for the billions of people affected by your decision. You hear a conversation from behind you. Evelyn Whirlwind and Lord Reginald Barry are leaving the warehouse. I can't believe Fitz got the time machine, mourns Evelyn. Who knows what that maniac will do with it. Hey Evelyn, catch! With a free hand, he tosses the time machine to her. She catches it and takes off through time before Lord Barry can fight her for it. What did you do? You say gravely. 
history reforms itself. The Native Americans successfully defended their home from European settlers. Societies change. Lives are shifted around with wild abandon. By the time of your birth, the world is in such a different state, your father never meets your mother. You were never born. You never bring the time machine to the future. You have created a paradox. Andrew Fitz smiles through the destruction of the universe. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 110 You arrive at the destination Oberchuk selected. You look around and see everything that sci-fi movies promised you about the future. Flying cars, human-sized pneumatic tubes. You even see a kid skate by on a hoverboard. You and Oberchuk each hold the time machine with one hand. He turns sharply to you. Now that we're safe, who are you? He demands. Um, I'm a visitor from the future, you mumble. Stranded in this strange, far-off time, you think it's probably best not to make the only person who can get you home angry. Hmm. Try again, he says. You stare back at him dumbly. He starts again. Before my home was raided, you said... Not exactly, as in, I am not exactly a visitor from the future. So, who are you, exactly? You crack. I live in the house across the street from you. This morning, the FBI called me, and they told me to steal your time machine. Well, why didn't you? You had the chance. You could have taken off with it right after I explained how it worked. He asks. The conversation is halted by a pair of street tufts. One has two-foot orange spikes jutting out of his head. You think it might be hair, but you're not sure. The other has eyes on stalks, like a snail. He is equally as slimy-looking. Both wear leather armor with nonsense words graffitied on them. Give us everything you have on you, or we use this, warns the one with the spikes. He wields an amorphous purple blob, threateningly. Uh, what will that thing do to us? You whisper. I don't know. I'm not too familiar with this time period. Oberchuk replies. Then why did you bring us here? I didn't exactly have time to plan this trip, you know. If your buddies at the FBY hadn't broken my door down... I thought you said that was ice. I don't know who it was anymore. Shut up and give us the box, old man, screeches the young man with the eye stalks. They're getting impatient. Something has to happen soon. If you attempt to disarm the thugs, skip to chapter 80. If you try to comply, skip to chapter 111. Chapter 111 uh, The Box says Oberchuk. Would you rather have my wallet? The old man calmly and carefully reaches into his coat pocket and presses a button on the remote. With a sound of a thunderclap, you disappear away from the trouble. You reappear in a forest. Where are we now? You ask. I don't know. I hit a random button. Oberchuk replies. 
He fiddles with the remote. You look around. There's a strange uniform quality to the forest. All the trees look the same. Until an arrow whizzes by, just inches above your head, depositing itself in the nearest trunk. Uh, hey, Dr. Robertchuk. You squeak. You think we can get out of here? It's Mr. Oberchuk, actually. He corrects. I've never finished school. Short-sighted ignoramuses wouldn't know real science if it... Another arrow passes right in front of his eyes. He looks out into the distance. Hello! He shouts. We mean you no harm. Just get us out of here. You plead. Something's interfering with the remote. I think we're in a hollow room. He says. Suddenly, a giant centaur-like beast emerges from the wood, trampling trees in its path. It's got the legs and body of an elephant, a proportionally large gorilla torso, and a ferocious tiger head. It rears up on its hind legs, ready to stamp, then falls harmlessly to the side with an arrow in its head. It flickers a few times, then disappears. Big yellow numbers and letters appear in midair. They read, 1,000 XP. A pointy-eared man in a green tunic runs through the numbers, and they burst with a satisfying pop. Wielding his bow and arrow, he breathes deep and speaks from his diaphragm, like he's performing. Worry not, wary gentlemen, I'm here to rescue... Wait, these are not period-appropriate clothes. Computer and simulation! Everything around you fades away. The forest is replaced with a large, totally featureless room. All that remains is you, Mr. Oberchuk, the stranger, and his bow and arrow. He looks at you with shock. Uh, computer, activate alarms, we have intruders in the hollow room. He shouts. Who are you? I'm a level 80 ranger, so you better hope I like your answer. He punctuates this statement by drawing an arrow and aiming it directly at your face. Now free of interference from the hollow generator, Oberchuk activates the time machine. At the same time, you put your hands up, slamming the device into his shoulder just as you both disappear. There's no thunderclap this time, or rather there was, but you couldn't hear it. The time machine has deposited you and its inventor into the cold void of space. Mr. Oberchuk instinctively drops the remote to grab his shoulder. It floats away from you. If science fiction movies are to be believed, you have about 30 seconds to get that remote and get to somewhere safe. With nothing else on which to gain traction, the only way to move toward the remote is for one of you to push the other. If you push Mr. Oberchuk towards the remote, skip to chapter 112. If you use Mr. Oberchuk to launch yourself toward the remote, skip to chapter 82. Chapter 112 You move yourself into position to push Mr. Oberchuk toward the remote, but he's one step ahead of you. He takes your free hand and places it on the time machine. He motions for you to hold on to it, then gives you a hard shove, propelling himself toward the remote. He reaches it, presses a few buttons, and then he's gone. You're sure he's coming back for you? He's gotta be, right? You look at the nothingness around you. The closest object, as far as you can tell, is a star that looks like a slightly bigger little speck than all the other little specks. He wouldn't just leave you here. You're certain. Skip to chapter 113.
Chapter 113 You don't know how much longer you can hold the air in your lungs. Optimistically, you'd say that you have maybe 10 seconds if you don't freeze first. Your vision clouds. One by one, the little specks disappear until the blackness consumes you. You hear the life-saving sound of a thunderclap. It was buried under an uproarious audience applause, but it was there. Your head is pounding. All you can see is a white blur. Oh, man, where am I? You ask the blur. It answers with Mr. Oberchuk's voice. We're at a wrestling show. Muscle Explosion 4, to be specific. 1986 at the Meat Burger Dome. It's safe, and it's too public for any of your cronies to come pick us up. Shapes take focus in front of your eyes. You see the ring now. A man in red tights with flowing blonde hair lifts a man with Canadian flag tights onto his powerful shoulders and throws him roughly to the floor. Tell me exactly what happened to you this morning, Mr. Oberchuk commands. I need to know what the FBY is planning with my time machine. They have no respect for the sanctity of history and I fear for what they would do. Okay, I was sitting in my living room, then my phone buzzed, and there was someone at the door. I answered the door, it was the FBY. They told me not to answer the phone and that I needed to go across the street and steal your time machine for them. They said they were trying to save lives. You recount. Who was on the phone? He asked. I didn't answer, but the man at the door said it was from ICE. You answer. Mr. Oberchuk gasps. We have to get back to my house and grab the time machine. Wait, why? What's going on? You stumble. Don't you see? He yells. I set you up. The man at your door must have been a hologram. The FBY don't have a time machine of their own, so they would have had to have piggybacked on the phone call. There's no way ICE wouldn't have noticed that, so they let it happen. That way, you steal the time machine, commit time crimes, and finally have the evidence they need to destroy my work. We have to get back to the house to stop them. But the time machine is right here, it's safe. The Mark II is here. He points to the lettering on the box. The Mark I is sitting in my basement. The Mark III is in my bedroom. The Mark I is a crude device, and the Mark III is only a prototype. If either were destroyed improperly, the consequences could be disastrous. We have to leave, now! By ourselves? It sounded like they had a whole team with them. You reason? Hmm, you've got a point. Well, we'll have to put together a team of our own. I'll need to call in some favors. Okay, before we go, I have two questions. Why did you come to my house, and why didn't you steal the time machine like you were told? I might be fool enough to want to risk destroying the universe by traveling through time, but I'm not such a fool to let anyone who shows up at my doorstep do the same. Ah, I think I might like you. Skip to chapter 114. Chapter 114 
You appear back in Mr. Oprachuk's study. You panic and brace yourself for a fight with ice. It doesn't come. I don't understand. Where are the people that were raiding the house? You ask. I took us back one week from today. Now, if I remember correctly, we should have a few minutes before my past self returns from his, uh, uh, rather my trip to ancient Saskatchewan. He explains. Great, so we just take the time machines and leave. That way we're not here when the bad guys get here, right? You say. Paradox, he warns sternly. Yeah, but... You counter. Paradox, he insists. They were probably coming to this room looking for the Mark III. They were probably coming into this room looking for the Mark II. Luckily that's with us. But they still might find the others. I'm going to make some alterations so that if it falls into their hands, the results will only be horrific, not catastrophic. How reassuring. You mutter. Overchuck runs for the door. On his way out, he says, Look in that filing cabinet over there. He points to the back corner of the room. You'll find files on people we can depend on. People that are hip to how time travel should work. What does that mean? You wonder. They'll help us fight. Just get the files. You approach the file cabinet. There are three drawers. The top is open already and empty. If you pick files from the middle drawer, skip to chapter 115. If you pick files from the bottom drawer, skip to chapter 116. Chapter 115 You open the middle drawer. It's empty but for a single manila folder. Inside, you find three pieces of paper, each with a picture and a list of relevant information. The picture shows a samurai, a woman with hundreds of small eyes covering her arms, and a two-headed dragon. You want to examine a page more closely. If you examine the page with the samurai, skip to chapter 117. If you examine the page with the woman with eyes on her arms, skip to chapter 118. If you examine the page with the dragon, skip to chapter 119. Chapter 116. You open the bottom drawer. It's empty, but for a single manila folder. Inside, you find three pieces of paper, each with a picture and a list of relevant information. The pictures show a woman in a tight jumpsuit and heavy makeup, a man in spandex and a cape, and a blank space. The page with the blank space also has a list of relevant information. You want to examine a page more closely. If you examine the page with the woman in the jumpsuit, skip to chapter 120. If you examine the page with the man with a cape, skip to chapter 121. If you examine the page with a blank space, skip to chapter 122. Chapter 117. You flip to the page with the samurai. His name is listed as John, born in 1192, fell into a portal while fighting the demon Dodomeki in 1210 died in 2423. You skim down to a section labeled Known Weaknesses. The first entry is Unwavering Commitment to Morality. The old man bursts into the room before you could read the next item. We have to go now! He shouts. Did you pick a team? Don't you think you should look this over too? You suggest. Every team in that cabinet was hand-selected by me to be able to handle any task. I'm sure whatever you picked will be fine. 
It's time to take down ice. You have time to switch this folder for one from the bottom drawer, but not to look it over. If you stay with the team you originally chose, skip to chapter 123. If you swap teams, skip to chapter 124. Chapter 118 You flip to the page with the woman with eyes on her arms. She is known as Dodomeki, a demon, born human in 1195, cursed in 1208, reformed in 1348. You skim down to a section labeled No Weaknesses. The first entry is Arm Eyes Vulnerable to Poking. The old man bursts into the room before you can read the next item. We have to go now! He shouts, Did you pick a team? Don't you think you should look this over too? You suggest. Every team in that cabinet was hand-selected by me to be able to handle any task. I'm sure whatever you picked will be fine. It's time to take down ice. You have time to switch this folder for one from the bottom drawer, but not to look it over. If you stay with the team you originally chose, skip to chapter 123. If you swap teams, skip to chapter 124. Chapter 119 You flip to the page with the dragon. His left head's name is unpronounceable. The right head is called Bill. Born in 1982 somewhere in the Wolf Lundmark Malote Galaxy. He skimmed down to a section labeled Known Weaknesses. The first entry is Recklessness. The old man bursts into the room before you could read the next item. We have to go now! He shouts, Did you pick a team? Don't you think you should look this over too? You suggest. Every team in that cabinet was hand-selected by me to be able to handle any task. I'm sure whatever you picked will be fine. It's time to take down ice. You have time to switch this folder for one from the bottom drawer, but not to look it over. If you stay with the team you originally chose, skip to chapter 123. If you swap teams, skip to chapter 124. Chapter 120 You flip to the page with the woman in the jumpsuit. Her name is Alana Cutlass. You recognize the name. You're pretty sure she was a famous singer in the 70s. Her date of death is listed as unknown. You see the words suspected extraterrestrial origins. Next to that, Oberchuk has written in pen, confirmed, and then cross that out. Under the known weaknesses section, you see only one entry. It simply says ego. The old man bursts into the room before you could read the next item. We have to go now! He shouts, Did you pick a team? Don't you think you should look this over too? You suggest. Every team in that cabinet was hand-selected by me to be able to handle any task. I'm sure whatever you picked will be fine. It's time to take down ice. You have time to switch this folder for one from the middle drawer, but not to look it over. If you stay with the team you originally chose, skip to chapter 124. If you swap teams, skip to chapter 123. Chapter 121 You flip to the page with the man in the cape. He fights crime under the name L'Homme Superbe. French crime fighter from the year 3000. Real name unknown, origins unknown. Has a power of flight and super strength. You skim down to a section labeled Known Weaknesses. The only entry reads, Redacted for security purposes. The old man bursts into the room before you could read the next item. We have to go now! 
He shouts, Did you pick a team? Don't you think you should look this over too? You suggest, Every team in that cabinet was hand-selected by me to be able to handle any task. I'm sure whatever you picked will be fine. It's time to take down ice. You have time to switch this folder for one from the middle drawer, but not to look it over. If you stay with the team you originally chose, skip to chapter 124. If you swap teams, skip to chapter 123. Chapter 122. You flip to the page with the blank space. The entirety of the text on the page reads as follows. Intangible concept of malaise. Born in the void outside the known universe. Owes me a favor. The old man bursts into the room before you can read the next item. We have to go now! He shouts. Did you pick a team? Why does the concept of malaise owe you a favor? You ask. What does that mean? What did you do? Something in the future. I hope to put off finding out for as long as possible. Now, if you're ready, we have to go. He answers. You don't want to look the team over? Every team in that cabinet was hand-selected by me to be able to handle any task. I'm sure whatever you picked will be fine. It's time to take down ice. You have time to switch this folder for the one from the middle drawer, but not to look it over. If you stay with the team you originally chose, skip to chapter 124. If you swap teams, skip to chapter 123. Chapter 123. You set about recruiting the team. The dragon comes easily, though its redhead has some reservations. The samurai jumps at the chance to fight injustice. But you run into some problems recruiting the woman with the eyes on her arms. She lives in a cave outside a small mountain village in 14th century Japan. You appear directly in the cave. The woman stands in front of you. It looks as if she was waiting. Immediately after you arrive, the samurai draws his sword and points it at her neck. Vile demon! He accuses. Overchuck, why have you brought me here? In our previous travels, you swore to me that returning home and slaying the evil that dwells here would cause a paradox that would swallow the world. Um, I would say this is probably the result of a filing error, Overchuck sheepishly responds. Samurai, the woman soothes. She holds out her arms. These eyes do not close. I do not sleep. I sit in my cave every night and think about the things I've done, the people I've hurt, the people I've killed. I have dedicated my life to atonement, but now that you are returned, it is not mine to dedicate. It is yours to take, if that is your decision. It is all I deserve. The woman calmly drops to her knees, exposing her neck in anticipation of the blade. Do it! crows the dragon's left head. Kill the demon! Oh, you're so boorish, scolds the right head. Choose forgiveness, samurai. The sword hovers above the woman in the samurai's hands. If you save the woman's life, skip to chapter 125. If you allow him to slay the demon, skip to chapter 126. Chapter 124 You travel through time recruiting the team. Your first destination is the Hammersmith Odeon, a theater in London in 1973. The marquee reads, Alana Cutlass, for the last time ever! Overchuck turns to you. This was her first tour. She can be a bit dramatic, but she gets things done. You make your way backstage. Security recognizes the old man and lets you right through. When you arrive, a team of assistants are changing her makeup and costume. When she sees Overchuck, 
She raises an eyebrow. Overchuck nods. Gentlemen, Battle Gear, she announces. The assistants lift her in the air. She stands perfectly still as they adorn her in her Battle Gear. An immaculate white suit and slicked back hair. She takes your hand. You know she's just doing it so she can leave with you when the time machine is activated. But you feel special. Like she's chosen you for something. She definitely has an aura about her that inspires confidence. Your next stop is the Eiffel Tower in the year 3000. It's collapsing and about to land on an ice cream shop. You hear panic shouts of Mon Dieu and La Tour from the crowd. With only seconds to spare, the man the cape flies in and lifts the tower back into place. L'homme superbe! Come the relieved cries from the crowd. The hero lands in front of Overcheck. Qu'est-ce que tu fais ici? He asks. Est maintenant. The old man answers in a semi-confident accent. D'accord. Says the hero with a nod. Overchuck leaves to recruit the third team member by himself. He returns in an instant, and you suddenly feel very hopeless. You look at the team. Overchuck and the superhero seem to feel the same. Um, it's with us now. The feeling. It'll be with us when we arrive, sighs your neighbor. Let's go, I guess. Alonzi, you know, for the French. He trolls off. Alana seems to be the only one unaffected by the malaise that has suddenly gripped the group. Get it together! She chastises, forcing you all to hold hands. She looks Overchuck dead in the eye. Do it. He warily activates the machine, plunging you back to present day. Skip to chapter 127. Chapter 125. You step between the woman and the samurai. Don't do this, you say. This woman, he sees. This demon has committed countless acts of evil. And she's very sorry, you say. She opened the portal that sent me thousands of years into the future, he explodes. I will never hold my son in my arms because of her vile deeds. Your boy grew up strong, says the woman. Do not speak to me about my son, Dodomeki, screams the samurai, raising his sword above his head. He was the bravest warrior this land has ever known, she says, full of remorse. I could never defeat him. He saved this village more times than you can imagine. The samurai lowers his sword, crying. John, I can never undo the things I have done. But it is my fervent desire to try to save more lives than I took. The samurai sheaves his sword. Let us go. We have no time to waste. You all gather in a circle, clasping hands and claws. Overchuck activates the time machine. You arrive in front of the house. Okay, here's the plan, says Overchuck. Without hesitation, the dragon rushes the house, bursting through the front door. Um, follow the dragon and perform whatever cleanup is necessary. You run into the house. Several ice agents lie unconscious on the floor. Prepare to be bathed in fire, you arrogant simpletons, cackles the left head. Wait, remember to use your inside breath, warns the right. The samurai and the demon realize what's about to happen before you do. They both lunge for the left neck at the same time. They're not quick enough. The dragon rears back and fills the entire house with 1,000 degree flames in an instant. You are incinerated. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 126 You plant your feet and do nothing. The samurai brings his sword up and swings down at the demon woman. The blade strikes her flesh and holds for a second. She vanishes in a puff of smoke. Clouds clear in the sky and the sun shines bright. 
The samurai turns to Oprachuk. Why did you want this woman on the team? He asks coldly. She was reformed. She had remarkable skills, pleads Oprachuk. You weren't supposed to know. She was a demon, screams the samurai, bringing up his sword once more. You flinch, not wanting to see Oprachuk cut down in front of you. Instead, the warrior brings his sword down on the time machine, slicing it clean in half. Do not speak to me again, says the samurai, sheathing his sword and walking away. Oberchuk tries to fix the machine, but it is damaged beyond repair. Replacement parts won't be invented for another few hundred years. You are stranded in feudal Japan. The dragon goes off to live in the ocean, occasionally menacing sailors for its amusement. You and Oberchuk part ways after a few years. He becomes obsessed with creating the materials to rebuild the time machine himself. He never succeeds. You travel the world's dark corners, chasing tales of supernatural occurrences, portals flinging hapless citizens through time, that sort of thing. You never find a way home, but you do have a great deal of adventures in the medieval world. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 127 You feel instantly better when the time machine drops you in front of Oberchuk's house. The wave of bad vibes that had engulfed the group passes to the ice team invading the home. Oh, what's the point? One of them whines inside. Okay, a lot of them will have given up right away. Frenchie, you take the house. Alana, you go to the basement to make sure the Mark I is secure. We'll handle the cleanup, Oberchuk commands. Alana nods and runs for the basement door. Quoi? says the superhero blankly. Oh, uh, les maisons, allez, allez, says Oberchuk, gesturing toward the house. With that, the Parisian powerhouse plows through the front door. You enter the house to find all the ice agents tied up, back to back, in a circle. They wear mysterious stone armor, but it was no match against your super-powered friend. Oh, très bon, mon ami, exclaims Oberchuk. Bet you'll think twice about trying to take my property, eh? Alana strides confidently into the room, followed by two more ice agents. She waits a second. What do we say? She reminds them. We're sorry, Mr. Overchuck. They recite, roughly in unison. Sorry for what? She prompts. We're sorry that we ran an illegal operation in an attempt to frame you and destroy your time machine. They drone. Good boys. I knew you'd be right in the end, she says. Now go, sit with your friends. They do. Excellent work, Miss Cutlass, beams over Chuck. Now, which of you is the leader of this little ragtag group? Me, sir, squeaks a small man with a goatee. Is this everyone? Asks over Chuck. The leader does a mental head count, then nods sadly. Uh-huh, so tell me, did I suddenly institute a policy of breaking into people's homes to destroy things? Poses Oberchuck. No, but, starts the agent. Well, you're sort of on this list. Time travelers we can't technically bust, but would really like to. As a preemptive measure, and I just thought, uh... He stumbles. You just thought? Leads Mr. Oberchuck. I thought that if I could set you up and bring you in, it would be very good for my career. The agent confesses. Suddenly, another team bursts in. They look much less professional than the group tied up on the floor. They're in plain clothes, and they hold no weapons. The lead intruder comes in yelling, Okay, everybody, cool it. We're the FBI. This is a... 
He stops short when he sees ice all tied up on the floor and a bona fide superhero standing over them. Robbery. Oberchuk looks at them. He thinks for a second. He turns to the head ice agent. I could report to your superiors, but they probably agree with you, and frankly, I don't want to give them any ideas, suggests Oberchuk. So why do you say I give you these guys? You promise never to do anything like this again. Alright team, let's get that time machine, says the FBI agent with strained confidence. I'm not messing with a guy in a cape, says another one. A third simply runs away. Hey, how'd you get here without a time machine of your own anyway? You ask. The second one answers. Oh, our parents found a one-way portal to 1967. There wasn't much they could do then. But they knew if they waited till now, we could steal this one. Shut up, Josh! Scolds another agent. We're getting arrested anyway, what does it matter? Complains Josh. You've got a deal, says the ICE agent. Great, says Overchuck. Trenchy, untie ice. They'll take it from here. Lum Superb looks at him blankly. Overchuck throws his hands in the air. Uh, Alana, you speak French. Tell him what to do. Alana explains the situation. The French freedom fighter nods sagely and does as told. One by one, Ice zaps the FBI off to some future prison with their metal tubes, apparently standard-issue miniaturized time machines. Before zapping off himself, the main Ice agent looks at Overchuck dead in the eye. I won't set you up again. But one day, you're going to miss something, and we're going to take you down. Overchuck smiles. That's never going to happen. <laughs> I would know. I've seen the future. Skip to chapter 95. Chapter 174 You stare across the ruined landscape at Oberchuk, the Mark VI heavy in your hand. He holds the Mark VII close, like a security blanket. A harsh wind blows in his face. Look what you've done! Look what you've become! He pleads. You're worse than ice! You're worse than the FBY! Give it up, old man! You shout. This is what time machines are for. This wasn't your plan. You lack vision. You're weak. So, this is it. You're really going to do this? There is nothing you can do to stop me. You both eye your respective time machines. You rush to push your button before Oberchuk can push his. You hit them at the same time and feel yourselves moving through the time stream together. You don't understand. It's never been like this. What did you do, you coward? 
You spit it over, Chuck. I'm stopping you the only way I can, he explains. Look around you. These are the days of our lives. Each one is erased as we pass it. By the end of this, neither of us will have ever existed anywhere in the multiverse. You look at him with pure fury. If you smash your time machine against his until this stops, skip to chapter 144. If you accept that you've become the villain of the story and allow Overchuck to erase you, skip to chapter 162. This podcast is a part of the Benview Network. You can find this and other podcasts like it at BenviewNetwork.com.